special episode of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and today we have this live stream. It's our first time live streaming Some Like It, Scott. We did test run a Champs Lunch episode earlier this week, and it went so well that we're like, you know what? We've been tossing around the idea of doing this as a live stream for a while, the Some Like It, Scott, at least, and especially this particular episode, our best of the decade episode, and we're doing it. Uh, yeah, today, like I mentioned, it's going to be a very special episode running through our favorite movies from the decade that has been the 2010s. It's going to be very similar to how we did our top 10 movies of 2018 episode back, you know, January of, of this year to wrap up 2018. Uh, but we'll go over the ground rules here in a second. First, of course, I need to introduce my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing today? How many hours have you slaved over this list? Well, Scott, I, I'm doing good. You know, I'm very excited for this. This is really an episode we've been talking about since the very start of this year. Like, no joke, we've been talking about how we're going to do this. Whether um, we do I, it this month or whether we wait till somehow December. And, right, that's what I was yeah. going to say. I'm sure there's going to be some people out there who are going to be like, yeah, but how can you make a be best in a decade list when it's only August 2019? And you Is know, that a Rob that impression? Who is that? That is something. I don't know. I was trying to do what Christian Harloff does <laughs> when he imitates trolls online. Um, mm -hmm. But... That is something we talked about, um, but totally. we, deter we determined that um, because the end of the year is really crowded, a lot of movies, and we have all of our end of the year stuff, mm -hmm. it would make more sense to do it now. You know, what are we, nine and three-fourths of the way into the decade? <laughs> um, you know, and, and just take the risk that maybe one or two amazing movies comes out in the last half of the decade. But, Scott, you know, I've been workshopping this list for a several months now. Um, yeah. Moving stuff around. I mean, there has been, you know, a fair amount of turnover. I've rewatched a lot of the movies, at least the movies in my top ten. Mm -hmm. um, I, I say I'm, my my one and two and three have remained pretty much the same, um, but there's been some flip flopping around the whole list. Um, it really is just such a great list. I think um, yeah. top to bottom, I have a full list of fifty, which I will reveal on Letterboxd um, after this episode is released, um, so that everybody can see. Uh, the 30 movies or so that we're not going to get to talk about today um, that were on my list. Uh, but yeah, this should be a lot of fun. We've also tried to guess each other's because unlike the end of the year episode, we have not told each other our lists ahead of time. Uh, so we may have some uh, some aggressive reactions to certain choices <laughs> or certain placements um, when when our, you know each other's lists are revealed. So that's yeah. Be because fun as well. to give context, we chatted about this extensively right before we went live uh, for like a solid fifteen minutes about uh, how many each of us had guessed right so far. We don't know which ones we've guessed so right. Uh, we also have guessed which one of us or are each other's number ones. Um, so I think it's going to be a really fun game for us. <laughs> and yeah. Hopefully we're going to get to talk about, you know, I'll probably I'd estimate 25 to 30, maybe even 35 different movies. Cause I think our lists are somewhat, somewhat different, especially in the top 10. Yeah, I definitely think so. Which is good because when you have a decade with so many movies, um, you don't want to just be hearing about the same 10, 15 movies. Um, so I'm glad that there's going to be some diversity there. Yeah, absolutely. Shall we uh, shall we get started? 
Let's do it. All right. So like I said, we are going to go over some ground rules here first. And to do that, I'm just going to say, first off, just like our end of the year episode for last year, we're going to quickly rattle off our numbers 20 through 11 uh, from the last decade this time. So not just the last year, the last decade. And then we'll get into more interesting bits. Our top 10 movies will alternate starting with our number 10 and go back and forth all the way down to our number one of the decade. We don't think there's going to be too much overlap with our lists, like I just alluded uh, alluded to, but with the exception of maybe one or two movies. Uh, when that does happen, we're going to do things a little bit differently than how we did last time. Uh, rather than delay discussion till, uh, we're gonna, and, until the person whose uh, list is highest on, we're going to instead talk about the movie right then and there, the first time it comes up, and then acknowledge it when it comes up again later, but not spend too much on it the second time around, too much time on it. So as for ground rules, I think that should just about do it. Did I miss anything, Scott? Uh, so one thing which I will just say about my list specifically, um, and, and this is something that, you know, people will probably be up in arms about. Scott, I know you're somewhat up in arms about it, but uh, my top 20 is yeah. actually a top 22, and my top yeah. uh, 10 is actually a top 11 because I have two ties and I know that you should, you know, that rational minds would say, well, you know, if you have two ties, just make, uh, don't treat them as one movie, treat them as two separate movies. But you know what? I didn't want to leave a certain movie out of my top 10, uh, in favor of, uh, just because I had a tie. So my top 10 will have, uh, 11 movies because there is a tie at one place and my top 20 will have 22 because there's another tie in the 11 to 20 range. But you know what? It's half my show too, Scott. So, uh, sometimes you just have to surrender to mob rule. That was fine. I, I never said you couldn't do it. I just said that I would shake my head when we were live streaming. And now you can, we can all, everyone can see that he is in fact shaking his head. No, and now it's over. Uh, I won't bring it up again. Um, there we go. All right, let's do this. All right, Scott, let's just go ahead and rattle through your numbers 20 through numbers 11, and then we can call it anything worth mentioning in that in those 10, but otherwise want to eventually quick, quickly to the, the top 10. Sure. So starting off at number 20 is my tie, uh, tied at number 20. Uh, and, and I, I think there is some, you know, rationale to this. I didn't just pair two random movies together because I wanted to get them in, but mm -hmm. tied at number 20, my two favorite action movies of the decade, uh, both starring, of course, the goat himself, Tom yeah. Cruise. Uh, and those movies are Mission Impossible Rogue Nation directed by Christopher McQuarrie and Edge of Tomorrow directed by Doug Lyman. Uh, two really, really fun movies anchored by, uh, the amazingly charismatic, uh, Tom Cruise doing all of his own stunts, of course. I thought you were going to say Rogue Nation and Fallout. Okay, interesting. <laughs> no. Uh, number 19 is Short Term 12, uh, which is an indie drama from uh, okay. Destin Daniel Cretton featuring one of the best performances of the decade from Brie Larson. Uh, really love this small film, and I hope people will seek it out if they haven't uh, seen it before. Number 18 is Carol, uh, directed by Todd Haynes. Really stunning uh, romantic drama starring Carol. Uh, Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara, just one of the most uh, impeccably made and crafted in all of the elements uh, films of the 2010s. Uh, number 17 is 20th Century Women, uh, period piece from Mike Nick, uh, Mike Mills, sorry, uh, set in 1970s uh, California. Amazing cast uh, from top to bottom. Uh, Annette Bening, Greta Gerwig, Elle Fanning, um, all excellent in this uh, really... Uh, Emotional and well-told uh, period drama. 
Number 16 is I, Tanya, uh, the amazing biopic from Craig Gillespie. Again, talking about lead female performances, I feel like uh, is been the trend in the 11 to 20 films here. And this movie, of course, has uh, one of the best as well from Margot Robbie uh, and a great supporting cast as well. And that killer soundtrack. Um, some people, I've seen some people who love it, some people who hate the use of, uh, you know, the sort of classic rock music and um, in the movie that obviously tells a very dark story. But I think this movie was a really uh, interesting take on the story of Tanya Harding because we thought about Tanya Harding in a different way that we had ever thought about her before. So that's uh, my number 16 movie. Number 15 is Whiplash, uh, Damien Chazelle's debut, uh, Full Metal Hi-Hat, as uh, as Mark Kermode called it when he reviewed it. Uh, br brutal drama uh, about uh, two men uh, sort of locked in this uh, battle of wits. Uh, Miles Teller as the young drummer who comes under the tutelage of the uh, tyrannical, uh, I guess it's safe to say, Fletcher, played by J.K. Simmons in an Oscar-winning performance. Um, a really interesting uh, exploration of both of these characters. That, that One of the things I love about the movie is the way that uh, J.K. Simmons' character isn't really made out to just be a tyrant. He has his reasons for what he does, too, and they really get beneath the layers of that. Uh, so a really well-told story, an amazing debut by Damien Chazelle. Number 14 is Nightcrawler, uh, directed by Dan Gilroy. A really uh, incredibly suspenseful uh, thriller uh, set in Los Angeles um, about a... Uh, creep, I guess it's fair to say, Lou Bloom, played by an amazing Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, who becomes involved in the the uh, business of uh, taping crime footage and selling it to news networks. Um, and, and what ensues is uh, some really twisted, but also really fun, uh, you know, adventures through uh, downtown Los Angeles. Really well told uh, film as well. My number 13 is Moneyball, directed by Bennett Miller. Mm -hmm. Um one of my favorite sports movies of all time, to be honest with you. Um, the way that this movie took what in no way should have been fodder for a great film, statistics, a, a tale about the statistics revolution in baseball, and turned it into uh, such an intelligent and uh, sensitive story. You know, you have a great human story in there with Chris Pratt as Scott Hatterberg, but you also have a story that I think really understands sports and fandom and the game of baseball uh, in ways that most sports movies don't. Um, and it's just a wonderful film. Uh, Aaron Sorkin, of course, uh, can do no wrong in my book. And this is another one of his great scripts. Uh, we're at number 12 now, I believe. And that is Silver Linings Playbook, uh, a great old-fashioned screwball comedy from David O. Russell. Another amazing cast in this one. Bradley Romantic Cooper. comedy. Yeah, Bradley Cooper, Jennifer Lawrence, Robert De Niro, um, Chris Tucker in a great part. Um, this is, is such a real? great movie. Is he not real? <laughs> yeah, uh, Scott, we, we talk about this movie a lot. We quote this movie a lot. It's just such a wonderful uh, romantic comedy that uh, really earns the uh, emotional payoff that you get in the end, uh, which is not something you can say for a lot of romantic comedies nowadays. So uh, really great movie uh, and well-directed by David O. Russell. And my number 11 movie, Scott, uh, couldn't find a place for it, uh, but it is a movie we've talked a fair amount about on this podcast. That's because it's our favorite movie of 2018. And that is mm. Searching, directed by Anish Shiganti. Um, such an, you know, for, for all the reasons we've talked about, such an incredible uh, feat to just pull off this new uh, form of storytelling, uh, telling the whole movie through screens. Uh, yeah. But the real strength of the movie, in addition to John Cho's performance, is I think the emotional heart that is at uh, the core of this film. 
was not expecting uh, anything near the emotional impact this movie had on me. Uh, from beginning to end, uh, he tells a story and he tells it um, in a tight way, but in a way that no doubt affects you. Um, and that, that opening sequence, opening seven minutes, um, is still just stunning. Uh, so wish I could have found room for searching, but uh, no shame in being just outside the top 10 or top 11. No shame. There you go. You brought it up again. I'm not me. Uh, <laughs> no, great, great top 10 or great. Sorry. 11 through 20 there. Uh, just switch over to mine. We'll get, um, I'm trying to think, I think that there'll be a couple movies of overlap here, but maybe actually only one now that I say that. So starting with number 20 for me, one of a, a movie that introduced to me what is now one of my favorite actors in Hollywood and also one of my favorite directors. That's Fruitvale Station, a movie in 2013 directed by Ryan Coogler starring Michael B. Jordan in his, I think it's both of their first roles. I think it was Coogler's first movie directing and it's Michael B. Jordan's first uh, feature film performance. And I remember watching this movie at the Indie Theater in uh, the town where I went to college and it was a packed house and I knew what the story was. I knew what was going to happen by the end of the movie. It's a true story about Oscar Grant uh, shot by police officers in an Oakland train station. And it was still, you know, even more, or all the more massively affecting uh, on me and, and changed my perspective and was quite a powerful way to, you know, be the first movie that I saw after I went to college. Uh, love, love that movie. It's a special place. It's a great my, movie. Yeah, special place in my heart for sure. Uh, number 19, Moonrise Kingdom. I, it's a movie that when I started out, I actually expected it to be higher unless it's an amazing film. For me, it, it, it is better than The Grand Budapest Hotel, directed by. Both, both of which are directed by Wes Anderson. I think that Grand Budapest Hotel probably is a better movie, but Moonrise Kingdom just really captures everything I love about Wes Anderson, I think, a little bit better, and I just enjoy it more. I wish I could have put both in my top 20, but alas, uh, Moonrise Kingdom is, is the one that, that fits in the list for me. Number 18 is Roma, directed by Alfonso Cuaron, of course, winning for Best Director, Best Cinematography, uh, as well as a couple others, I believe, last year at the Oscars. And well-deserved. I mean, it's a black and white film, the only black and white film on my top 20 list. And it's gorgeous. It's one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. Maybe not the most beautiful, but right up there. And I think it has, you know, between that and, you know, you mentioned searching already those first seven minutes. I mean, two of the best scenes of the decade uh, came from last year. And one, one of them was in this movie towards the end in the climactic scene where, um, Yelitsa Aparicio's character, um, whose name I'm actually, uh, is it Cleo? Cleo, Cleo? yeah. Um, s- rescues a couple of her children that she's a maid for mm-hmm. uh, from drowning in the ocean. Absolutely gorgeous scene. And Number 24 uh, on my long list. Number 24, <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, it's tough to fit everything in. Number mm-hmm. 17, Everybody Wants Some, uh, directed by Richard Linklater. It was, you know, we, I've only seen three Linklater movies, one of which, of course, we reviewed on the podcast just uh, just last week. Where'd you go, Bernadette? Uh, it was between this one and Boyhood making my top 20 list. And just something about Everybody Wants Some. Uh, <laughs> just push this higher on my favorites list. This is a movie that I can see myself going back to many, many, many times. It was a really fun slice of life experience to see the whole cast of characters, but especially Glenn Powell, who I was, a, I was first introduced to and set it up on, on Netflix. And this one was an even better performance by him. I think it's Linklater's best of the three films that I've seen. It's a very, I have very limited insight into his filmography though. So take that with a grain of salt. Uh, Boyhood, a great film in its own right. It just missed out on my list number 24 for me. But this was the one that I could just see myself going back to again and again and again, because it's that good. Number 16, A Star is Born. 
uh, this was probably my biggest surprise. Uh, I mean, besides searching, of course, which I didn't know anything about, but I, I had a really negative opinion going into this movie. I wasn't really excited about seeing Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. Uh, and what I got was utterly surprising. Some of the most captivating musical sequences that I've ever seen in a movie, probably the best concert scenes, especially that I've ever seen because the, between Bradley Cooper directing and the cinematographer just escaped my mind. I was just thinking Matthew Libatique. Yeah. yeah La Matthew Libatique. They just capture everything perfectly from a concert perspective. I think that the first hour of this movie is perfect. I don't think there, there's a single complaint I could have about the first hour of this movie. I think I still think it's a five-star movie uh, with even with the, with the second half as well, but I think that it has to, it has to get down and do some dirty work in the second half that just, maybe isn't makes it a little bit less enjoyable. And obviously, yeah. you know, if you've seen the movie a lot harder to watch in the second half as well uh, for reasons that are just part of the narrative. And I, I know that's not a critique on the movie whatsoever. Uh, it just means that there it's a, it's a story of, it's a movie of two halves uh, and you're getting very different experiences out of those two halves, but a fantastic movie. Number 15 for me was the social network directed by David Fincher, written by Aaron Sorkin. This is a movie that I will raise my hand and say that if I had rewatched this film, uh, it very possibly could have been higher on my list, top 10, top five. This movie, even back when I saw it in theaters in 2010, is a really special movie. I wish that I had rewatched it. Uh, I'm sure that I, you know, I might very well rewatch it by the end of the year and it might change my opinion on it, but this is a fantastic film. I haven't seen as much of David Fincher as I'd like, but I love Aaron Sorkin so, so much. And I think that, you know, besides a few good men, maybe. Uh, maybe the best writing that Sorkin's ever done for a feature-length film. Thank you for putting some respect on the name of, of A Few Good Men. <laughs> I know, it's one of your favorite movies, so I had to throw it in there it for you. But I think that the, the writing in this movie is spectacular. I think that um, Jesse Eisenberg, I mean, the whole cast of characters here is amazing, Andrew but particularly Garfield, yeah. Jesse Eisenberg. What did you say? I said Andrew Garfield as well is really good, yeah. Yeah, Andrew Garfield as well. Um, but fantastic movie. I want to revisit it soon just to see if it, it changes its position on the list because it's a great movie. Number 14, the first animated film on my list, Inside Out, Scott. This is an amazing Pixar movie. Probably my favorite Pixar movie of the decade. Better than either Toy Story 3 or Toy Story 4, which did just mix, miss out. Both of them are on my top 50 list, but missing out of the top 20 here. And that's because Inside Out something special. Uh, the voice cast from top to bottom is amazing. It's just a beautiful story. It's something that I went into not really expecting it, but what Pete Docter, the director, gave me uh, was incredible. It's something that I, you know, really hadn't seen in a Pixar movie before, which maybe some people will roll their eyes at and shrug. I haven't seen every Pixar movie, but for me, this one just really felt like something special. And it's why I'm so excited about Pete Docter's next uh, Pixar movie that he's directing coming out next year called Soul, because I think that this might, it might be able to you know, rekindle the, the fire that this movie really, uh, I think, delivered on its, um, in its entire story. Number 13 for me, The Florida Project. Uh, Scott, I, I will go out and say for our listeners that I'm predicting this will be your number one. I, I don't think that I'll be right necessarily, but I'm predicting this to be your number one. And uh, you're the one that got me to watch this film for a long time. We had this agreement that I would watch Florida, The Florida Project. If you would watch Blade Runner 2049, you watch Blade Runner 2049, and I watched The Florida Project, and Sean Baker doesn't disappoint in this film. Willem Dafoe, one of the best supporting actor performances of, of the decade, and tells a story that is brutal. It's brutal It's brutal and beautiful simultaneously, and I think when you can combine those two things, especially in a story format, you know, showing a, a slice of society that often uh, gets left in the shadows and gets overlooked 
up and down the board, right? Because it's it's dirty, it's ugly, it's not very nice to look at. Um, but when you roll over that stone and you get a movie like this that shows you the humanity of people who are really struggling to live on a day to day basis, uh, low income, uh, difficult, you know, a mother, a single mother, only child in the in this motel outside Orlando, Florida, the it's a recipe that doesn't necessarily scream incredible movie, but what was delivered was an incredible movie. And uh, it's one of the best movies of, of the decade. Uh, number 12 for me, Midsommar came in this year, probably the only horror film. Skull. I, yeah, yeah. 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 This one, I'd, I'd bet the, I'd bet the house on being in your top 10. Uh, it's a, it's a special movie. Uh, I was reticent to see it. I'll admit it. Horror is not always uh, the genre that I seek out, but it's the kind of horror movie that I do get more into these days. Midsommar directed by Ari Aster. It's his sophomore uh, debut. I didn't see his 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 directorial debut, Hereditary, last year. But uh, when you saw this movie and told me what it was about, and also the things that I read about it, I'm like, you know what? Do I want to go experience this movie? I don't know. Do I need to? And do I think that I ultimately will like it because of its, you know, what I like to call kind of this new genre uh, within horror, subgenre within horror of horror with a message, and you know, horror telling something really interesting in the themes that it's exploring and this story of a devolving. Uh, toxic relationship between these two people played out over the course of this vacation in Sweden. Uh, this ni- nightmare in Sweden even is incredible. It's breathtaking. I could not stomach uh, seeing it a second time, seeing the director's cut with 20 more extra minutes of footage in it. 30 uh, extra minutes. I 30 extra minutes of footage. Perfect. Even more of a reason to not go see yeah. it <laughs> again uh, because of just how exhausting the movie is to watch, but in a good way. Exhausting in a good way. Um, and, it, and it really made the most of what it could do for me. And I think that it spoke to me on a level which I wasn't always comfortable with, right? Like I could see yeah. things things about my own experiences in the past before that uh, it was tough to wrestle with. And I and not many movies make you wrestle with those things. And I, I loved it all the more for it. Uh, fantastic movie. And then my number 11, Scott, I think this is going to disappoint you because I think it's one of the ones that you predicted to be in my top 10. I, Tanya. Uh, this movie, just missing out on my top 10. It's my favorite movie from 2017. It's really special. Probably one of the best performances of the decade from uh, Margot Robbie, uh, and even more so in the case of Allison Janney and Best Supporting Actress. Uh, both of these actresses put in a spectacular uh, put in spectacular performances, and I think that it's also it, it's it's tough because I think that there are good performances uh, across the board in it as well, but they're so overshadowed by these. Uh, almost titanic performances from these two people. And, you know, you talked about it already, so I don't need to dwell on it too much longer, but even Paul Walter Hauser, uh, shoot, who plays her husband? Sebastian Stan. Sebastian Stan, that's right, yes. Sebastian Stan of Winter Soldier fame. Uh, But yeah, a great movie. Wish it could have been in my top 10, but there were 10 movies for me that were better. Yeah, Um, so as I was saying, Moonrise Kingdom, number 30 on my list, so that was on my long list as well. you know, several other of your movies may still be to come. So um, I would expect nothing less. We will see, but uh, very solid 11 through 20 from you there, sir. Absolutely. We're already 20 minutes in, which is a bit longer than I expected, but I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad we got to talk about those movies too, because sure, would, yeah. I would be remiss if they got left out. Yeah. And I should also note, you know, you mentioned our little uh, gentleman's wager there about Blade Runner 2049 and Florida Project. Blade Runner 2049 made it in at number 40 on my list. Um, so I obviously enjoyed that movie almost as much as you enjoyed the Florida project. So it turned out to be uh, a good experience for both of us. Yeah. Blade Runner 2049 was 30 on my list. 
Nice. There you go. All right. All right, Scott. Let's Shall get the top it? 10 started. It's what the viewers and listeners came for. What is your number 10 of the 2010s? All right, let's do it, Scott. Um, 2010s, you know, long decade. Uh, I guess not much longer than any other decade. They're all 10 years. But, um, you know, when you're, when you're looking at a 10-year span, you have a lot uh, of movies and a lot of ground to cover. Um, and so for my number 10 movie, we're going to go all the way back uh, to July 2019 uh, because my number 10 is Midsommar. Um, you just brought it up uh, as your number 12 movie. Um, this uh, movie from Ari Aster, my favorite movie of the year 2019 so far. Um, and I think, Scott, that this is just a movie that is what you get when you have a director with incredible craftsmanship, incredible technical style. And he gets a story uh, and characters with the substance to match that style. Um, it's it's a perfect marriage between style and substance, I think. Um, nice you know, obviously, we could go on for 15, 20 minutes about just the camera techniques that are used in this movie because they are just on a whole nother level. Uh, Pavel P Pogorzelski, I believe, is the, uh, the cinematographer um, who does an incredible job. Uh, you know, in addition to what Ari Aster brings behind the camera, uh, the production design by Henrik Svensson. Um, I'm going to be mad when it doesn't get nominated for an Oscar probably, but it's incredible. It's the first movie he's ever done production design before, which is amazing uh, because uh, the, the, what, what sets we do have in this movie are uh, incredibly designed um, and really add to the, just the ominous feel uh, of, you know, what's going on on this, uh, Swedish cult from the moment that uh, Florence Pugh and Jack Rayner set foot um, with the cult. Um, so, yeah, so you have that in terms of stylistically. Uh, great score as well. Um, mm -hmm. And then you have the story, um, which I think, you know, for some of the reasons you've said, um, is really interesting in the way that it explores particularly relationships in the modern day. Um, and I think uh, it's a challenging, I think also to one of your points that um, this movie it sets it sets up the relationship as if there's going to be an easy answer, um, as if you know we can look at one person and say, well, there's the demon in the relationship. Um, this is one sided, and then I think in the end it really challenges uh, you know the notions of these characters that it has set up um, in a way that I didn't really expect, um, and forces you to uh, think about some things. It forces you perhaps to empathize with. Um, a certain person that maybe the movie has thus far told you you shouldn't be empathizing with. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting and perceptive way, honest, to be honest with you. I, I've wrestled with uh, what the last 30 minutes of the movie in particular, uh, the implications of what they are um, for, for some time. And uh, I, I think what, what Astor does is uh, commendable in, um, you know, resisting the easy answer and, uh, you know, getting at that gray area that does exist a lot of times in these relationships. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, haven't talked about the performances, but uh, Florence Pugh, uh, you know, she's in three movies this year, uh, two of which are in my top 10 right now. Uh, and she's a major reason why uh, both of those movies are in my top 10, Midsommar, Fighting With My Family. And uh, her third movie may also end up making my top 10 as well, because she's going to be in Little Women. Um, she's absolutely one of the others from your top 10. Possibly so. Uh, she uh, she's an absolute star. Um, we're going to see her in Black Widow next year. I just can't wait to see what she does next. And, um, you know, she's the star of this movie. And, um, you know, she absolutely anchors the movie um, and, and gets put through the emotional ringer, but portrays that uh, extremely well. 
And yeah, I mean, I, I can't I can't say enough about this movie. That's going to be uh, a trend probably with all these movies. I just can't say enough about how good they are. But uh, yeah. a truly original uh, piece of work. Uh, not for everyone, for sure. Um, I, I, I wondered about what you were going to think about it, Scott, honestly, going in you know, given your aversion to horror, there's some debate there about whether it even is a horror movie, I think. Yeah, um, I'd say it, it leans away from at least when I when I when I yeah. tell someone this is a horror movie, I think the things that they would say that they assume about the movie are probably not in those themes are probably not in sure. Midsommar. Yes, that's true. There are some very disturbing images, though. So for that reason, yes, absolutely. It, it probably won't appeal to some people. Uh, but I hope, you know, like Scott did, I hope that if you're not a horror fan, you will still give this movie a chance because I think it's doing something a lot more nuanced, a lot more intelligent yep. uh, than really any uh, horror movie that I can remember in the past few years. Um, and it's it's an incredible piece of work. Um, and I can't wait. I don't know if I'm going to check out the director's cut or not, but I, I did see it twice in theaters. Uh, and I can't wait to get the Blu-ray when it comes out. So there you go. My number 10, Midsommar, Skull. I feel like you'll you'll end up finding it. The, the director's cut will be out there somewhere or you'll buy it on Blu-ray or something. Sure, like I'll that. watch it at some point. I just don't know if I'll get to see it in theaters. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I think I don't know how long it's going to be out in theaters. So if you don't see it this week, I don't know when you're going to see it. It's an amazing film, Scott. It honestly, as I wish, I mean, all these movies we're going to talk about today are amazing. It's why we're talking about them. It's my number two of the year so far. And every time, every time I think about that movie, I think that that, that movie, I'd have to really sit down and think about, but maybe more so than any other movie, maybe any movie in my top 10 actually makes me think about myself more yeah. than more than anything else. And I think that that is really special. Absolutely. All right, Scott. My number 10. It's uh, my other animated movie on my list. Um, it is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Uh, phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal uh, animated Spider-Man movie. Phenomenal Spider-Man movie. Phenomenal comic book movie. A phenomenal movie. I mean, anything. Yeah. It's phenomenal across the board. Uh, it came from Sony Pictures uh, Animation. Uh, we don't get too many movies out of them. They are more like in at least in their animated space, more known for things like the Angry Birds movie than something like Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. You know, I know that the Angry Birds two is doing well this year yeah. right now, uh, quite well actually, especially at least critically. I guess I haven't looked at its box office, but this movie did well at the box office and crushed it critically. It was my number two movie from 2018, and that's because it's really special. I think that the story that it tells, the first, I believe I'm right in saying, the first feature length. A film or animated film that has explored Miles Morales's Spider-Man and not just or uh, Peter or, or instead of P Peter Parker, right? Of course, we get multiple Peter Parkers in, in this film, but Miles is the center of the story, and the story that it tells is one of uh, belonging, of one of you know what does it take to be a hero? Asking that question, what does it mean to be a uh, think a, a person of color, a minority? and also be a superhero and also you know exist and live in that space uh the fact that he is a the son of an african-american police officer and uh, a latina nurse i think is a critical part of the story that not that many people talk about and i think that to see that on screen even you know live action or animated i think it would have worked both ways um really special and i think that the voice performances from shamik moore from uh Mahershala Ali, Brian Tyree Henry, Brian Tyree Henry is the dad. I think that e even Nicolas Cage, right? I mean, we talked about this on the podcast yeah. last year. Nicolas Cage has a minor role as Spider Noir, Spider-Man Noir. And 
yes, he's very Nicolas Cage, but it works. It works for that role. Everything totally. works well in this movie. And to talk about the elephant in the room about this movie, which I haven't mentioned yet, and I wanted to save it for the last thing I say, and that the animation style was innovative, groundbreaking, and perfect for this film. Uh, it really captures, I think, the edge of the page comic book style uh, of what, well, you know, if you opened up a comic book, if you went to the to your local comic book store, bought a Spider-Man comic and opened up the page, it looks like this was ripped straight off the page and it's all the more beautiful for it. It's a great film and it's my number 10. Yeah, it was number 22 or 23 on my list, Scott. I do think it is the best superhero movie of the 2010s. Um, yep. You might disagree with that. I think you may, you may, it's possible one comes up higher on your list, but we'll see. It's um, possible. I think for all the reasons you've stated, it's an amazing movie. Uh, that animation style, so innovative and something that surprisingly we've never seen before, that idea of a whole living comic book. Uh, and yeah, I think the the message at its heart is really what I, I take away and you know that everyone can be a superhero. Um, uh, anyone can wear the mask. Right. Um, and that's that's something really special that you don't see explored in a lot of superhero movies. Um, and yeah. so I love what this movie uh, accomplished and I have faith that, uh, you know, Maybe we, who knows how long it will be before we see another Peter Parker uh, movie. But I have faith that the Spider-Man legacy will carry on uh, with what Lord and Miller are doing over at uh, Sony with the with the Spider-Verse movies. Because, of course, we have a lot more Spider-Verse stuff coming out. And I, for one, can't wait to see what they have to do. Yep. Several movies. I think several TV shows. There's a lot going on over there uh, with this with this universe. And great because it's, it's awesome. Absolutely. All right, Scott, what is your number nine? All right, I should say my number nines because this mm. um, is my is my tie. Um, again, I think I think reasonable tie here. Uh, my two movies at number nine are two biopics of tech giants, uh, both of which are written by Aaron Sorkin, uh, and those movies are The Social Network, directed by David Fincher, and Steve Jobs, directed by Danny Boyle. Um, coming in at a tie, I really just couldn't pick uh, between the two movies because I think there is a lot of similarities between them. I think that. Um, this idea of these people, these two men, Mark Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs, who created these incredible, I mean, literally these two men have defined the way that we communicate in the modern era uh, with what they created with Apple um, and with Facebook. Uh, and yet, you know, much of these stories about are their failure to communicate with the people in their own life. Um, you know, whether it's uh, Catherine Waterson's character and Steve Jobs, you know, uh, who uh, Steve Jobs has had uh, relationship with it, you know, actually denies the fact, d denies that his daughter is actually his daughter for a lot of the movie. And, you know, for a lot of his life, that was how Steve Jobs was. Um, and then the same, you know, you see the same failure to communicate on Mark Zuckerberg's part. Um, you know, that incredible opening sequence with uh, him and Rooney Mara uh, as Erica Albright, his ex-girlfriend, and they break up after this just incredible exchange of dialogue that is up there, you know, with uh, one of Sorkin's best scenes. Um, but also, you know, eventually ends up alienating his best friend, Eduardo, um, who's play, played very well by Andrew Garfield, I think, um, you know, because he he sees the allure of uh, of money and prestige that uh, Justin Timberlake's Sean Parker brings. Um, and so I think that's such an interesting contrast that both of these men happen to have in common. And, I, you know, I think the two characters are very different. Uh, I think Steve Jobs is a lot more magnanimous um, of a character than Zuckerberg was. I mean, Zuckerberg, it was very off-putting in a way that uh, he didn't really, it, it seemed like he had no uh, idea that he was really being off-putting. Um, he was just kind of um, 
being himself and, and it happened to be very off-putting. And whereas Steve Jobs, I think, is in a little bit uh, more control of, of his behavior and he knows what he's doing. And in some ways, maybe that makes him the more, uh, I don't want to say despicable because I think that one of the things I like about the movie is that uh, they suggest that there's, both movies suggest that there's room for growth in the end. Um, I think just as amazing as that opening sequence in Social Network is that ending where you see Mark Zuckerberg sitting in front of the computer um, after he's added Erica as a friend on Facebook. Um, and he's just sitting there waiting for, you know, the request to be accepted. And I think uh, signifies after all he's been through, um, he realized that, you know, what he lost was the personal relationships um, and he hasn't really gained uh, as much as he thought he would. Um, and so the fact that he, he comes to that realization in the end, I think suggests that there's a growth in the same for Steve jobs, who really reconciles with his daughter at the end of the movie. And obviously Steve jobs is, is past now, but, uh, I think, you know, people who, who love Steve jobs and want to see his legacy protected, uh, can't be too disappointed. I think with what Sorkin does here in the end of the movie, um, he reconciles with his daughter. He even, there's even this implication that, uh, his daughter inspired him to create the iPod, um, and I think that uh, so. So I think again, like like uh, like we talked about with I Tanya, a really layered and nuanced uh, portrayal of people who we we think about them in different ways than we have ever uh, thought to think about them before. Um, and I think uh, you know Sorkin, obviously a master of writing witty dialogue, but I think that um, the character development and what he says about our society and the way that we communicate in our society in both of these movies. Um, is so on point. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, I think, I think it's why when you, when you look at movies nowadays that take on technology, a lot of them seem to be really cringy and like, you know, they're talking down to millennials and stuff. And I think one of the reasons why they seem like that is because Sorkin did it all. Like, you know, here he is like a mid forties, early fifties white guy. And uh, I think he he's he said all there is to say about uh, communication in the 21st century. And that's why um, some of these other movies seem like uh, they're so far behind because uh, Sorkin did it and he crushed it in both of these movies. Um, yeah. I, actually, I had forgotten that Sorkin wrote Steve Jobs. It's a movie I haven't seen, so I can't comment on it, oh, wow. unfortunately. And Michael yeah. Fassbender, amazing in that movie as well. I should have said that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you did say that now because people might might mix them up with yeah. the Ashton Kutcher's Steve. No, 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 no. No. <laughs> no, I need to see it for sure. And I think that it, I hope that it's the only movie in your top 10 that I haven't seen. Yeah. As for we'll the see. social network, I think I, I said my piece already. I really want to revisit that one as well. Yeah, I think you'll you'll find that it is it has aged very well, even though it did come out in 2010, right? It, it, you have to go all the way back to the decade to, uh, to the start of the decade for that one, but uh, yeah. it feels just as fresh and prescient now. And you know, it's what Sorkin does best. At its heart, it's kind of a courtroom drama. It's it's set in a boardroom, um, yeah. which is sort of the modern day courtroom, uh, but it does sort of harken back to a few good men in that way. Um, and so I think you know that's one of the reasons why that movie I think really plays to Sorkin's strengths and Fincher, an amazing director as well, to complement it. Yeah. What, what more can be said about that? I'm yeah. sure plenty, actually. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, we'll, we'll move on to my number nine, Scott. It's one that you've already mentioned. And I think that it's a movie that probably outpunched its uh, its weight, its weight class for me on this list. I think I only technically have given it four and a half stars, but it's also my favorite romantic comedy of all time. It's Silver Linings Playbook, directed by David O. Russell. Uh, called like, it. <laughs> yeah, no, called it for sure. Absolutely. Um, it's a it's a movie that on its on its sheer merits maybe doesn't deserve to be on top ten, but just speaks to me so much and 
it hit me in a phase right after I saw Winter's Bone, uh, and I think I, I think that I had seen Hunger Games too at this point as well before I saw this. But Jennifer Lawrence being one of my favorite actresses, even more so at the time in this film, uh, paired with Bradley Cooper, who maybe a recurring theme here from when I was referencing earlier in A Star Is Born, who is not my favorite actor of all time. Uh, to put it, maybe to put it kindly, because I think he plays a lot of the same character with the exception of, you know, I was very impressed with him in A Star is Born. Um, but Silverline's Playbook here was kind of that first introduction that I had to this stereotype of like Bradley Cooper character. And so it had not yet worn on me. And I think that what they put together between those two leads combined with also what Robert De Niro adds, what Chris Tucker adds, what the rest of the, you know, the whole rest of the cast adds as well is something really special. I think it's something that I wish that David O. Russell had been able to capture with American Hustle, uh, a movie that he did with Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper, I think only a year or two after this one. But it this is this is the real magic. I mean, you have these two characters who are not your stereotypical romantic comedy uh, leads. They're both people who are struggling with mental health in different ways. Bradley Cooper's character uh, with kind of the, I think his anger management, but also uh, anxiety and things like that related to his, uh, well now ex-wife uh, leaving him, cheating on him and his overreactions to that is what's, is what, is what centers or I guess is what is the foundation for this character that he has in this film. And then Jennifer Lawrence who lost her husband uh, and then proceeded to cope with that trauma in a really unhealthy way by sleeping around uh, with a lot of her coworkers losing her job, things like that. And and these two characters come together, I think, in, in this really beautiful, uh, volatile, hit sometimes, uh, way to help each other accomplish goals and some goals, which they didn't even realize they had for themselves. And I think that although cheesy in moments, especially towards the end of the movie, as almost all rom-coms are, it earns its cheese. And this movie is one of my favorite movies of all time, of the last decade, and my favorite romantic comedy for all for all those reasons that I just listed. Yeah, and something else, you know, just to point out, it was number twelve on my list. Of course, uh, it's an incredibly funny movie too. Um, yeah, it, yeah I, the that, diner scene, one of the best movies, one of the best scenes of the decade. That comedy, that you, you know, that you got to stress the comedy element as much as the romance because I think it is really funny, despite the setup. Yeah, uh, that may, that might make it sound a little uh, on the darker, more depressing side. I think there are a lot of really funny moments. I think Bradley Cooper's just tendency to put his foot in his mouth uh, a lot of times create some really funny situations like I, I still love the moment when he's getting a tour of his uh, buddy's new house um, and they go in the bathroom uh, and Julia Stiles is point who plays his buddy's wife is pointing out the speaker the mounted speaker on the wall um, and talking about how they can play music for the baby now and, and Bradley Cooper just says can you play ride the lightning by Metallica um, and it's great um, yeah. but so many funny moments and uh, yeah, great performances. Uh, I love the movie. Yeah, my number 12. It's a great film, Scott. What's your number eight? All right, Scott, you know, one of my favorite directors uh, is an Irishman called John Carney. Uh, he's only made three movies um, in the 2000s and 2010s, uh, and they all are, are similar in some ways. Um, I think, you know, you can go back to his first movie back in the 2000s, which was a really indie sleeper hit called Once uh, that went on to win an Oscar for Best Original Song for the song Falling Slowly. Um really uh, low-budget, independent movie about uh, two musicians who fall in love. Um, and then he followed that up uh, earlier in this decade with 
uh, a movie called Begin Again, which I really love as well. Um, it's just a really smart movie about the music industry uh, with two wonderful performances uh, from Mark Ruffalo and Kira Knightley uh, and also great songs like in, uh, like in Once. I think this one of the biggest Oscar snubs for me in this decade was that the song Lost Stars uh, from, uh, from Begin Again did not get nominated uh, for Best Original Song. But then uh, in 2016, John Carney came out with my number eight movie, which I think is his best movie of the decade. Uh, and that is a movie called Sing Street. Um, Scott, this movie is just perfect. I think, you know, obviously we're at number eight on my list and I've talked about three amazing movies, but I think when we get into this top eight here, this to me is the canon of the 2018s. Like these are the perfect films to come out in the 2018s uh, and I, or the 2010s, sorry. Um, and I think that starts with Sing Street. Uh, which is just a perfect story about, uh, you know, not not a particularly original setup. We have uh, a young man named Connor played by Ferdia Walsh Pilo, who starts at this uh, brand new Catholic school um, and uh, doesn't really fit in, uh, is bullied by some of the other kids, doesn't really like the repre repressive regime that the uh, head uh, priest at the school uh, has imposed, um, you know, forcing everyone to wear brown shoes, uh, which Connor is too poor to actually be, his family is too poor to actually be able to afford brown shoes. Um, he ends up writing a great song called Brown Shoes, but um, finds his purpose uh, when he meets Rafinha, who is a fashion model that lives across the street from the school, played by Lucy Boynton. And, um, you know, he falls for her, and it's a relationship that probably shouldn't work on paper. Uh, and, you know, this band that he forms to sort of win over Rafinha um, probably shouldn't sound as good as they do. But that's part of the the fantastical element of the movie, I think, um, is that these these young kids can can sound like a you know polished rock band and that uh, through his music and through his huge heart, uh, Connor can win over uh, Rafinha. And uh, a lot of the movie is about their love story. But I think one of the things which puts this uh, at the top of the heap for me in terms of music based movies over something like Blinded by the Light, Scott, which is a movie we just saw this year, um, is that there are some darker and more melancholy turns that the movie takes, particularly as it, uh, it explores the family life of Connor, um, his Dad and mom, played by Aiden Gillen and uh, Maria, Do Maria Doyle Kennedy, are sort of on the rocks. Uh, it's clear that they're headed for divorce. Um, and, you know, the movie starts out with Connor sitting on his bed writing a song uh, whose lyrics are that, you know, he's listening to his parents fight and he just is integrating the lyrics into integrating what they're saying into the lyrics of his songs. Uh, and that really kind of sets the tone. Uh, and it also sets up one of the most wonderful endings you will ever see in a film, uh, which hinges on the love story, but also on the relationship that Connor has with his brother, who is so brilliantly played by Jack Rayner uh, as uh, this, you know, sort of older, uh, almost he's sort of the father figure that um, that Connor doesn't have from his from his actual father. Um, but he's a guy who got stuck uh, in Dublin, never made it out. Um, he, who, he had the same dreams as Connor, uh, but for for reasons uh, you know, which he goes into in the movie, he, he was never able to make it out and that frustrates him. But also in, in Connor, he sees a way to sort of live vicariously and achieve what he was never able to achieve. And it's such a wonderful performance. Uh, some, of, some of the scenes where he's just giving advice to, to Connor are uh, just so perfect. He, you know, he tells him that no man, no woman can ever love a man, can ever truly love a man who listens to Phil Collins, which is just, that's a truth bomb right there. Um, 
I used to open my college radio show to a clip from this movie um, where he tells him rock and roll is a risk. Um, and it's, it's just wonderful. Um, and like I said, that ending so perfect uh, makes me tear up every time. Uh, and this is just uh, such a heartwarming uh, movie again, sentimental in places, but it earns that sentimentality um, and Again, great songs. That's something you're going to get in every John Carney movie. And the way that the song sort of, uh, because the band and Connor go through so many phases in the movie, like based on what's popular, you know, whether it's Duran Duran or The Cure, you see Connor go through fashion transformations based on that. And their music goes through the same transformations. Um, Their first song is this truly wonderful song called uh, The Riddle of the Model, which you have to listen to. Um, Of course, Rafinha is like, oh, so nice you wrote a song about me. And Connor has to play it cool. And so he says, no, it's about this other model I know. Um, And then uh, he, you know, the the centerpiece of the the movie and a song that so many people talk about is this song called Drive It Like You Stole It. Um, And it's it's wonderfully used in the movie as well. Um, I watched this movie so many times. I love it. It's perfect. Uh, and I don't think you've seen it, so you need to get on that. <laughs> I haven't seen it. Uh, I can't say that this particular genre of movies gets lights my fire because I haven't liked any of these um, jukebox musical type movies that have come out the, over the last two years. But, you know, maybe this one could be different. Yeah, I think it will. I can't imagine how a person could not be charmed by this film. I mean, it wasn't that successful, was it? I think it only made like $13 million at the box office, right? Well, but that's just because he doesn't have any stars or established director or anything like that. I think, I mean, it, it, if you look at the audience score, the critic score, I think uh, you're going to find a pretty consistent tone of uh, people who just love this movie. All right. We'll try to fit it in to my schedule, but I think by the yeah. nature of the genre, it might be a bit harder to to make it onto the list, unfortunately. Sure. Unfortunately, but so it goes. All right, Scott, number eight for me, that is a movie that I know that we will have, we'll be overlapping in our top 10 lists, and that is Spotlight. Spotlight coming out, uh, oof, I just blanked on the year, came out, but I think it's 2015. It is, yeah. <sighs> okay, good. Uh, 2015, because it won the Oscars in 2016. That's where my mix-up was briefly coming in there. But this movie, Scott, it, you know, we often call this one of the movies that won the Oscar that should have won the Oscar uh, for Best Picture. And it doesn't happen all that often we, when we talk about award shows, uh, which we've, an, we've had a nice hiatus from for a little while. Uh, but when we talk about award shows, uh, we talk all the time about how the deserving movie from a certain year doesn't necessarily always win that Oscar. But this one did. This one did. It's directed by Tom McCarthy and has an outstanding cast from Mark Ruffalo to Michael Keaton to Rachel McAdams, Liev Schreiber, Stanley Tucci. I'm sure I'm leaving some people out. I think Billy Crudup's in this movie as well. John Slattery. Slattery. Yeah. 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 I mean the, the cast. James, yeah. Which, oh, Brian Darcy James. Yeah. I mean the cast is just fantastic. It's uh, a movie, you know, I don't know if I ever have talked about this on air, but I think I have, I'm a sucker for a movie about Boston living here now uh, between this, the departed and the town. I think that you really have a trilogy or trio, maybe is a better way to put it of Boston movies, uh, all based on crime that happens in Boston. Say, probably not the best portrayal of Boston in any the, of them. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a different conversation, maybe. But maybe the um, the dirty underbelly of Boston. But I think something that's that all three of those movies, the town, not quite making my top twenty list uh, for the for the podcast. I think it came in in the in the thirties. Yeah, thirty eight. The town came in at. But I think uh, this movie is everything that I think that you want from a 
I, I guess when I, if to, to talk about a movie that we talked about on the podcast, this is everything that I wanted from the mo- a movie like The Post, right? This is like a journalism movie done right. You know, the performances are great. The characters are compelling. The arcs of the characters uh, who are exploring this, this investigative journalism piece about the Catholic Church, uh, I mean, a nationwide, but specifically in Boston, allegations of uh, childhood sexual abuse, uh, particularly of, of boys, of altar boys in the Catholic Church, uh, it is really ugly movie. I mean, I, I keep bringing that up, but it explores really hard themes to go to the movie and watch, but really important ones. And for someone who was my age, who didn't really wasn't old enough at the time when these events would have been uh, contemporary in the early 2000s, I think 2001 was when this movie is set. As 9-11 happens, you know, towards right. the end of the film, yeah. That's a great point, yeah. So 2000, 2001, uh, it was a it was a somewhat new story, at least in the depth and detail in which it went into, because I don't remember reading the spotlight piece uh, that, that they ultimately produce uh, in the film, and that was produced in real life, and I know you're going to have a lot more to say about this uh, when I shut up here, so I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, it is on my list, Scott. Uh, probably not a surprise. It's just I'm I'm obsessed with this movie. Um, it, for a movie with the subject matter that it has, there's no like explanation as to why it is such a rewatchable movie. Like I've watched this movie five or six times, and like it, the subject matter is so sad. Um, but it's such an incredible piece of work. This is a masterpiece in unostentatious storytelling. Right? We we mentioned that it when it won the best picture Oscar. And in some ways it is Oscar bait. In other ways, this is like one of the least Oscar baity movies of all time because uh, no one is showing off. Right. Uh, I think one of the most telling statistics for me about this movie is that it won best picture. You know how many other Oscars it won one. And that was for the screenplay. Oh, um, right. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. But I was thinking just, major Oscars. it's right. a movie where everyone is committed and the performances, the writing, the directing, everything works together seamlessly uh, so much so that like you you don't know that you're watching parts of a whole you're watching a whole the whole time um, and uh, I I think one of the interesting thing you know there's so many interesting um, themes in this movie but you know you talk about it being set in Boston and the way that it portrays Boston I think it does that so well the way that um, the Catholic Church scandal and the Catholic Church in general pervades all of the lives of these reporters. You know, you see that um, whether it's uh, Robbie Robinson, the Michael Keaton character, his best friend, uh, who is you know very involved in, and Robbie has to go to him in this climactic scene and you know beg him to give him some of the names, um, and it's just really a heartbreaking scene. Um, then you have Rachel McAdams, whose grandmother uh, is very involved in church, and you have just this incredible silent scene where you know the the story comes out and you see the two of them sitting at the kitchen table and no words are said um but um actually there are words said because uh she she you know the grandmother has clearly looked at the paper and she just simply says to sasha you know sasha can you get me a glass of water uh and it's just yeah. beautifully understated and then you have brian darcy james character right who discovers that one of the houses where uh priests have been abusing boys is right down the street from his house. Uh, and, you know, he walks out into the street, sees the house right there, has to put up that message on his fridge, you know, kids, stay away from this house. Uh, and so the way that, you know, they portray so well uh, the tension and this, um, you know, what these reporters must have felt, uh, the pressure that they must have felt in releasing this story, because it's everywhere. The The Catholic Church is everywhere in Boston. At the same time, I think the movie does the right thing by not lionizing these reporters, right? I think that... Um, one of the more interesting turns that the movie takes is um, 
when you when you find out basically that the Boston Globe has had this information for years, for 10, 12, 15 years, um, and they buried it basically. They either didn't publish the stories at all or they put it really deep in the paper where nobody really paid attention to them. Uh, and when the reporters have to come to terms with that, uh, it's something that's not easy to come to terms with because, um, you know, they have to come to terms with the fact that so many more more boys may have been abused and molested because of their inability to act. Um, and so that's something they, they don't let the reporters off the hook. But I think they do. Uh, in the end, it is still a tribute to the courage and, um, you know, power that the work of journalism can still have and that uh, these journalists uh, experienced uh, and showed uh you know, in investigating this story and in publishing the dozens and dozens of articles that eventually became part of this spotlight series on the Catholic scandal. And Scott, I'll never forget seeing this movie in theaters. And at the end of the movie, the uh, final like uh, postscript on the screen uh, that talks about all of the cities uh, where Catholic church scandals have been um, have been exposed and just this incredibly long scroll. I mean, ev every city you can imagine, basically. And, you know, you see that and then it just fades to the credits. Um, and I just sat there and my breath was just completely gone. Uh, I, I don't know what it was about this story, because, I mean, you know, there are plenty of uh, true stories, uh, movies that we've seen that have, you know, so much emotional impact. But uh, the Hunting Ground. Which is one we're sure, absolutely. About. Yeah, amazing documentary uh, by Kirby Dick. But um, this movie just took my breath away. Um, and it didn't need to show off to do it. Like, it didn't need to bait the Oscars. Uh, we didn't need to have flashy performances or directing or anything like that. It It's a testament to how a well-told story can still achieve the power that you want it to. And uh, it's an amazing movie. And uh, it is higher on my list. I'll mention it when we get there. Yeah. I think with that, we can switch over to your number seven. Sure, let's do it. Uh, my number seven, Scott, kind of like Spotlight, is a movie that on paper probably should be depressing, uh, but has an incredible amount of rewatch value. And that is Alexander Payne's Nebraska. Uh, this is just such a wonderful movie um, that was poor, very poorly marketed, I think, because it does look like this movie, depressing uh, movie, black and white movie about this old man going through dementia, um, which is, you know, obviously something that happens to, you know, millions of people in this country, uh, but not something that you necessarily want to watch a movie about. Um, and I think that's wrong because, first of all, he's not really going through dementia in the movie. He's getting old, uh, but there's no sort of uh, medical, uh, he's not experiencing any sort of medical uh, reason for that. Uh, but this is a movie about an old man named Woody Grant, played by Bruce Dern, who uh, sets out for uh, Lincoln, Nebraska to uh, collect a $1 million prize that he is believe that believes that he is one um through a sweepstakes which of course is a scam and it's like one of those chain emails you know that um people of woody's age are probably more likely to fall prey to um but joining him on his journey are his uh two sons played by will forte and bob odenkirk two actors mostly known for their comedic work who do such outstanding dramatic work here and then june squibb who is hilarious as his wife uh, there's an amazing scene uh, because a lot of the movie is set in Montana when they actually go back to visit Woody's hometown and his family on the way to Nebraska. There's an amazing scene where they go through the funeral, uh, the the graveyard, and they're visiting all of you know Woody's friends and old classmates who have passed away. And uh, the the hilarious and sort of bawdy stories that um, 
June Squibb tells about the people who are in the graveyard, leading to her uh, pulling up her skirt and flashing uh, one of the gravestones uh, is it's hilarious. I mean, that's one of the things about this movie, right? It looks so depressing. This is one of the funniest movies of the 2010s. Like there are so many hilarious scenes uh, involving Woody and his family uh, who are just basically Midwestern rednecks. Um, and just Woody's very matter of factness um, and sort of the hijinks that result from that. There's a, there's a great sequence where um, Woody has been talking a lot about this uh, air pump that he believes someone else in the town has taken from him many years ago. And so Will Forte decides as a nice gesture that he's going to go to this person's house and get the air pump and he does it. And you know, it's a, it's sort of a suspenseful sequence because he's got to sneak into their garage and get it. And as they're drive they're driving away, and Woody's just like, why did you steal that air pump? And he's like, this is your pump. You know, I stole it back for you. And he's like, that's not their house. After he, he just went through the whole thing. Um, great. So much great um, comedy in the movie. Um, and really such a uh, sort of touching and uplifting ending. Uh, I won't spoil it, Scott, because this is another movie I know you haven't seen. But um, it... I, again, I think people are going to look at this movie and think it's going to be a depressing story, but it's a really wonderful story about family uh, and about, uh, you know, everyone is going to die. Um, every life has a beginning and an end, but it's about how you get there. Uh, I believe the tagline for the movie was even something like that. Um, it's about how you get there. Um, and what, what you know, obviously Woody goes through an arc in this movie, but what we see uh, the son the Will Forte character um, going through as well. Um, it, it's real. it's a really touching and, and wonderful movie. And um, I hope that people will catch up with this one because it was well-reviewed at the time. It was nominated for best picture. Uh, but I think this is a movie which hasn't really stayed fresh in sort of the, the film Twitter discourse, so to speak. And uh, maybe it's not a movie that people talk about much anymore, but it's my number seven movie of the decade. I love it so much. And these performances are amazing. Yeah, I'm really eating my words here about earlier saying hopefully I haven't not seen many yeah. of your top 10 movies. Uh, clearly didn't look too much at my predictions because this is another one that I hadn't seen. I think that it's been on my list to see for a really long time. Is it black and white as well or no? It is, yeah. Yeah, uh, black and white uh, looks, I mean, it looks gorgeous. Bruce Dern, I've known him more for his cameo appearances and things more than sure. any feature role that he has, but he was nominated for Best Actor in this one. I think this got six Academy Award nominations. If I'm remembering correctly. Sure. Um, right. But the point is, you mentioned well-reviewed. Yes, definitely yes. I think that this is exactly the type of movie that, however, probably wouldn't get people to go sit in their seats because, you know, I think probably regardless of how it was marketed, I think it would have been a tough sell, right? This old yeah. man who, dementia or not, is getting scammed. Um, and I think that's one of those subjects that people... You know, they know they know it happens and it's not a good thing. And do you really want to go to a movie for two hours? And, and I'll you know, just on that note, it's not a mean spirited film. You know, the, I, no. you mentioned that. And I think that that's that's a good point uh, that maybe that's that's another reason that the, the setup of this movie is not something that uh, is going to attract people. But like I said, yeah. I think it ends up being a really touching movie about family uh, and yeah, totally. the sweep, the sweepstakes ends up being uh, not as much of an important part to the plot as it's made out to be. So. Uh, it's not the first or the out. last movie that has been poorly marketed about sure. what its message is. Sure. Uh, but again, I think this one is probably going to be higher up on my list of things to catch up on before the end of this, the actual end of this decade. Yeah, you, you should. All right, Scott, going on to my number seven. Now it's not, not Nebraska, but it is a movie that you've already talked about uh, a little bit at least. And that is Nightcrawler. 
Nice. Yeah, you know, Scott, I have so many thoughts about this movie. I remember the very first time that I watched this, directed by Dan Gilroy, lead role of Jake Gyllenhaal, but also featuring maybe a, a normal cast of characters in Dan Gilroy movies, uh, Renee Russo. Uh, I guess maybe he, she's the only other one that's like a recurring cast here. But also Riz Ahmed, who I'm a huge fan of, particularly from The Night Of, which is a Netflix, or sorry, not Netflix, HBO uh, miniseries. And then Bill Paxson uh, is a big player in this movie as well. And, you know, you talked about it just being a, a really gritty film about the dirty underbelly of LA crime journalism, uh, particularly about this uh, character, Lou Bloom played by Jake Gyllenhaal. And I think it's all the more, it's a creepy movie. I mean, you called Lou Bloom a creep and that's to say the least, but I think that one of the things that's uh, that accentuates the creepiness is what Dan Gilroy is able to capture from a, Set. I mean, obviously he's not doing the set design, but the way that he's directing this movie, set design, the cinematography, the music that he, uh, of course, helps. Um, yeah, the score is great in Nightcrawler. Yeah, the, the score is great. And I just think that this is what I've wanted from every other Dan Gilroy, Jake Gyllenhaal movie that has come out since then, including Velvet Buzzsaw from earlier this year on Netflix. And I didn't get that. I, they've also done another movie, too, I think, in, in the meantime, but I've forgotten it off the top of my head. Um, but the point is that what they were able to capture these two, Jake Gyllenhaal and Dan Gilroy here, was something that it's hard to repeat. I think it's a near perfect movie. And the last shot of this film and, and the last scene is really haunting. And if you, if, if there is any moment in the movie where you begin to empathize with this character or feel bad for this character of Lou Bloom, I think this story does a really good job reminding you of exactly who Lou Bloom is by the end of the movie and really clever uh, way in a really in really clever ways, and then I mean sometimes a little bit uh, more on the nose than others, of course. But yeah. this movie is great. I as creepy as it is, you know, I talk we talk about plenty of movies that are really difficult to watch and difficult to, and therefore are probably not high on the rewatch list uh, of things. But this one, like Spotlight, I think is able to be rewatched plenty of times. I mean, I don't, I I, I know at some point I probably will rewatch Midsummer, whether it's the director's cut or the regular cut. I don't know. But this is the type of movie that even though it's difficult to watch and is creepy and has some minor horror elements to it, uh, definitely not a horror, definitely more of a thriller, but it it earns it really hard. And uh, I'm always happy to revisit this movie. Yeah. And I think, you know, some of the on the nose, this on the noseness that you talk about in the story, I think actually complements what the movie is trying to say well, because a yeah. lot of it is about sort of the crassness of uh, journalism and the way that you know, sex and violence sell. Um, and, you know, that's not necessarily something that has a lot of subtlety to it. And so I think the on the nose tone that the movie takes uh, in a lot of the scenes actually complements that really well. And yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal's performance, one of the many amazing performances that he gave in this decade and in his career. Yeah, and, we could probably uh, get a best of the decades Jake Gyllenhaal show all on his own. While we're talking about Oscar snubs, not even nominated for this movie, which is I mean, I, I don't even have the words to say what an injustice that is. Yeah, whatever. I think that for me, I mean, you talk about that. I, it's one of those stories that is, you, know, you talk about the the crassness of it. I think it's a great, it's a great a compliment to a movie like Spotlight because they're both tackling, sure. well, I mean, they're, they're going about it different ways, right? Spotlight is tackling the actual theme or the content of what is being reported on. And I think... In, in contrast to complement that, you have something like a night, Nightcrawler is going after not the content of what is being reported, although I think it, it does it is making a statement about the content that it's selling. You talked about violence and sex 
sell, but it's critique. I mean, it's also a critique of local journalism and how not that the people who do local journalism are really bad people, although we come across plenty of shady characters, Lou Bloom included in this, but how dirty of a business local journalism can often be and how different it is from something like Spotlight and the Boston Globe. Yes, you're reporting on a local story, but you have a national, you have a national camera, you have a national lens projected onto that. And that's not at all what is going on in Nightcrawler. And I think that's why it plays as such a perfect compliment to that movie. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And yeah, really suspenseful movie. Like the yeah. scene where he goes through the house uh, oh, after oh. hair raising, hair raising. Um, what a scene. Yeah, wonderful movie. Absolute scenes. <laughs> what yeah, said. Absolute scenes for sure. Yeah. All right, Scott, what's your number six? Number six, Scott, maybe the movie that I've rewatched the most on this list. Your number 17, Everybody Wants Some. Uh, this in- Wonderful movie from Richard Linklater. Scott, this was my friends and I's favorite movie in college. Uh, I I so wanted this movie to become a cult classic, like uh, the movie which it is a spiritual sequel to, Dazed and Confused, you know, obviously was a cult classic back in the early 90s and uh, was one of those movies for a lot of people who grew up during that time. Uh, And I wish that everybody wants some, uh, you know, was able to capture that as well, uh, capture that audience as well. But it unfortunately, it hasn't for... Uh, who knows why, but, uh, you know, very interesting. It is a spiritual sequel to Days and Confuse. Richard Linklater actually wanted to make this movie like right after Days and Confuse, but didn't even have the resources to do so back then. But yeah. of course, after making stuff like School of Rock and Boyhood, um, he sort of had a blank check and and wanted to go back and make this passion project. And I think, honestly, the movie is better for having come out when it did because mm-hmm. uh, it got to attract the cast that it did, um, which top to bottom for me is what makes this movie a bit of a step up on Days and Confused, which I still think is a brilliant film, but I think every single character in this movie is so memorable, whether it's uh, Blake Jenner as Jake, whether it's uh, Tyler Hecklin playing Glenn McReynolds, uh, Justin Street as the crazy, uh, insane pitcher, Jay Raw Dog Niles. Um, and of course, you know, you mentioned him earlier, but the standout, if you have to give the MVP to someone, it's got to be Glenn Powell, who is playing the... Who's playing Matthew McConaughey. Right. He's playing Wooderson from Dazed and Confused, uh, right. but he's playing it really freaking well. Um, and, you know, who, Scott... Who this, did Michael McConaughey or Matthew McConaughey better, Glenn Powell or Matthew McConaughey? Yeah, that's honestly a good question. Um <laughs> But Scott, you know, this movie fits right in line with uh, the type of movie that Linklater does best. Um, You know, it's sort of a slice of life uh, movie that coasts along on its plotlessness, right? Um, But I think there's dramatic tension from the fact that the, the tension comes from you wondering whether anything is actually going to happen, right? <laughs> You're watching real life happen. And just like real life, sometimes these moments go by and they're completely mon- mundane. And then other times at the most unexpected time, uh, you know, a profound moment will suddenly happen. I think, you know, sometimes in Linklater movies, you know, like I said, the suspense, the tension comes from wondering is that, you know, if you're going to get a profound moment and, you know, you have this movie and everybody wants some where you have freaking mud wrestling outside a baseball house. Uh, and yet the movie ends up with Blake Jenner and Zoe Deutsch, like floating in a lake talking about Greek mythology. And I think that just, you know, encapsulates, uh, what makes Linklater such a unique and wonderful director, um, is he can make a really great hangout movie that also has something to say. And I think, Maybe this movie doesn't have, uh, you know, maybe the messages and themes of this movie are a little more buried than they are in some of his other movies. Maybe that's not yeah. the thing you immediately think of when you um, uh, when you walk away from this movie. 
but it's also a really, really amazing hangout movie. Um, Phil, because, because you, again, you like hanging out with these characters so much. Like yeah. this is about a two hour movie. I could have, you know, I could have watched two or three more hours of these characters. I, I, I genuinely did not want this movie to end because the characters are, are so lovable. Uh, and what they get up to is just hilarious. I mean, so many memorable lines and scenes. Uh, yeah. Like I said, my friends and I love this movie. We love to quote the lines to each other. Um, nerds back in back in college yeah i guess that makes us nerds but um this is one of those movies that uh should rule college dorm rooms for the next uh 10 20 years because i think uh you know people who anyone who takes a chance on it is going to uh find more than meets the eye i think um it's not just another sort of jock comedy uh to be sure it has those elements in it but it has some really uh great real life true true to life moments uh that come from the bonds and the relationships that these characters form uh and man is it just a delight to watch there's a reason that i've uh revisited this movie so many times and uh have so many of the lines uh stamped in my brain it's it's perfect yeah it's a it's an incredible film from that perspective absolutely no doubt i i talked i mean I, when i talked about it earlier i've only seen it once but it's exactly the kind of movie that you know, you could, you could watch it on repeat. I really, I really believe that. I think that you could, the movie could end and you could immediately start it back over and again and again and again. I, I remember <laughs> when I was a kid, um, Cheaper by the Dozen was a movie that I just, I would literally <laughs> watch over sure, and over no, that as a kid. in one day. This movie, similar, I, I could see myself doing something similar to that. I think this movie is a hell of a lot better <laughs> than Cheaper by the Dozen. That's good to hear. Yes. <laughs> but I think that it captures the spirit of, you know, if I was in a certain kind of mood on a certain day, I could watch that movie all day. I could just watch I mean, it all yeah, day. That's the scene of them in the car rapping along to Rapper's Delight, I mean, that is just, it's such a simple scene. It's just guys in a car rapping along to a song, and yet it's, it's so wonderfully done. Uh, it just makes you want to hang out with these people. Yeah, I do want to say that I don't know if the movie is for everyone. I think that there's plenty of people out there who... I disagree. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, I think that's a little bit narrow-sided. Yeah. But I, I think that there's... I think that what you say around there's more to meet the meet the eye on anyone who watches it, I think that that is true. But I don't think that necessarily translates to everyone loving this movie. I mean, this movie is, like, very white. I mean, just to, to, be, to be plain. Well, um, I think that's a product of the time in which it is set. <laughs> Sure. I mean, yeah, sure. But that doesn't mean it's any more or less white. It's not a critique on the movie. I'm just saying that's why I can see. It may not reach an audience because of that. Right. I, I don't. Right. I don't think that's the fault of the movie. Yeah, sure. I'm not calling it a fault. I'm just saying that that's right. why I, I think that's that not everyone. It necessarily speaks to everyone. It may not necessarily be for everyone, even though it speaks to me really well. Uh, it's one of my favorite movies of the decade. And I know that I'll be revisiting it a lot. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Scott. So my number six is a movie that just missed out on your top 10 or top 11, however you want to describe it. And that is Searching, number one movie from last year. I I, mean, I was going to say I could do a whole podcast on that episode, but we literally did a we whole did. podcast <laughs> on that uh, on that movie. And uh, it's, it's a spectacular movie. Honestly, I don't even know if I have much more to add that I haven't said before, but John Cho's leading performance, Anish Shiganti's directing the hook of this movie that on on its surface, if you just read a plot summary, is not that special. It's a basic, you know, mystery thriller about, you know, dad searches for what he, what he believes to be kidnapped daughter, the authorities, and some other people think that, you know, maybe she just ran away. Uh, but even though it may not have been the first movie ever to come up with this hook of telling a story entirely through 
the cameras on iPhones or computer screens. It is the first movie to do it this well uh, and and tell such a tight narrative, have such a beautiful story in uh, you know and uh, laid into it. And it's a perfect movie. I think it's a perfect movie. The opening six or seven minutes, you've already talked about it. Uh, you know, I alluded to it earlier when I when I was talking about you know best scenes uh, of the decade, maybe even being from last year. And it's you go through the entire emotional gamut in those six minutes. And not a single line of dialogue, just some text noises popping in, just reading the words on the screen. You you've you know you haven't seen a live action person yet. You've seen these pictures that have gone across the screen, and you've seen some recorded videos from you know set in the past, but you haven't seen John Cho. You haven't seen I'm forgetting the name of the daughter uh, right Wanda. now. Well, yeah, yeah, I meant the actress, but oh yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. You know, you haven't seen any of the characters, and yet. You know that in itself could have been, uh, you know, a narrative short movie that could have won an Oscar, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, it's so it's so impactful. Uh, I think Bao won animated short last year. I think that the emotional impact that that short had on me that played before Incredibles two, I think, in many ways, this had the same you know, a similar emotional impact on me. And then you have the rest of the movie, uh, which is equally spectacular. I think it's a fantastic film. If you haven't seen it, you're really missing out. Yeah, I mean, justice for genre films, like hashtag justice for genre films, I think uh, this movie, you know, more, more than most in this decade uh, showed that what a genre movie can accomplish is just as, is something just as wonderful uh, and impactful as, you know, a traditional Oscar Beatty movie. Um, and they they probably won't ever get the respect that they really deserve. Uh, but I think it's absurd that this movie didn't even warrant an editing nomination uh, because I think what the editors of this movie did uh, to make for a streamlined and enjoyable viewing experience, uh, some, you know, a, a concept which must have been hard to film, uh, I think is amazing. But yeah, uh, I've already spoken about it at length. Uh, and so I won't say any more, but uh, just outside my top 10, uh, it's, it's an amazing movie. It is. All right, Scott, getting to the real nitty gritty yeah. of it now, the top five. What's your number five? All right, let's continue the hashtag justice for genre film uh, train. My number five is It Follows. Uh, wonderful independent horror film directed by the great David Robert Mitchell. Um, one of my most unforgettable uh, theater experiences of the decade, for sure. A movie that I went into not knowing a lot about, um, only you know some good reviews, and just sat there wild for the next hour and 40, hour and 45 minutes. You know, Scott, I think that... Um, the decade of horror and the the generation that the era that we live in of horror movies right now is one of the best ever. Um, we are really living in a golden age of horror movies, and uh, you know some of the visionary directors that we see in this space, including Jordan Peele and Ari Aster, they're doing stuff that we've never seen before in the horror genre. But I think it follows as a movie which really sort of kickstarted, at least for me, uh, this golden age of horror. Um, yeah, I'd agree with that. And, you know, did something that was seemed fresh and new. You know, in some ways it's an 80s nostalgia movie, uh, <laughs> but transplanting that uh, into a modern setting or, you know, this quasi modern setting, because that's one of the cool things about the movie is that it's never really clear where the movie is set. I, I think that's something that's actually kind of consistent in all of Mitchell's movies is uh, there's sort of an off putting uh, sense of time and place. Uh, you, you know, there are, there are things which make you think, oh, this is really modern, and then there are also things which make you think, uh, wow, this could this could be the '80s right now. Um, 
And I think here, the score by Disaster Piece, for example, uh, you know, borrows very heavily from John Carpenter and some of the the scores that he produced for like Halloween and the thing and stuff like that. Um, but also Michael Jalakis, of course, um, the pop, the, uh, you know, frequent collaborator with Mitchell cinematographer, uh, just does so much with the widescreen cinematography in this movie, uh, that is complemented by the premise of the movie, right? Like that, the idea that someone could be following you at all times. And we don't know what that person looks like, what they're going to be manifested as I think lends itself well to this widescreen cinematography because you're all constantly on edge, right? You're constantly scanning the background thinking, you know, Oh, is this, you know, is this person following? Is this the person, um, you know, is this the demon? Uh, and I think the way that it keeps you on your toes is pretty brilliant. Um, and you know, best of all is the sequence on the, this long set piece on the beach, um, where you see someone approaching from behind, but the characters don't see it. You know, it's, it's almost Hitchcocky and it's almost rear window. And, uh, in that feeling that you want to reach out and scream at the characters, you know, look behind you, yeah. but you know, you're powerless cause you're the audience. Yeah. Um, so good. Uh, and I think that there's interesting themes in the movie as well. I, I mean, I don't want to explore them too much because, you know, this is obviously a short format, um, show but um i think the you know what this movie says about like relationships and sex in particular i think that the movie was set up as oh here we go an std allegory right like you you sleep with someone and you get this curse and i think that is a very oversimplified version of what the movie is actually saying about <laughs> um, relationships and intimacy uh yeah. and what it's saying is something a lot more complex um and you know, the ending of the movie, I think, says a lot to me. You know, we see that um, Jay and Paul, uh, Micah Monroe and, and Kira Gilchrist, uh, you know, Paul, of course, is is the sort of uh, he's he's the lonely guy who's been wanting to get with Jay the whole movie. And finally, uh, you know, Matt, Matt Singer, I think, in his review described him, he said, said that he related so hard to Paul as the guy who uh, just wanted to to sleep with this girl so bad that he would risk getting a deadly virus um, just to do it. Uh, and I think that describes Paul pretty well. But um, he, uh, you know, at at the end of the movie, they've, they've finally gotten together and they're walking together hand in hand down the street. And there you see in the distance someone walking behind them. And you don't know if that person's following them. But for, for the maybe the first time in the movie, they're both carefree. Um, and you know, maybe somebody is following them, but maybe they don't care anymore because they found each other. And I think that's uh, really interesting and adds new layers to uh, what the movie, the, the sexual politics of the movie. But um, it's also just a great horror movie. Uh, some great hair raising moments, beautifully shot, uh, beautifully acted uh, by, you know, pretty unknown cast. Um, and yeah, this, you know, like I said, unforgettable theater experience. When it came out, all I could think was, I want to go watch that again. And uh, one one of my fondest memories was when I got to write a review of this paper, write a review of this movie for the uh, the newspaper at Furman, uh, because this was one of the first like indie movies where I was like, everyone needs to go see this movie right now. Um, and so it will always hold a special place in that heart, for, in, in my heart, uh, for me. And so I, that's why it's number five on my list. Um, it's it's an amazing genre movie. Yeah, my grand strategy is to actually convince some like sex ed classes at like in like public <laughs> school districts that this is the abstinence only education that people need. Because uh, <laughs> the really simplistic view True. of this being an STD movie, uh, STD allegory movie. Uh, one, I 
I disagree with pretty strongly. All, all I can think about is the teacher from Mean Girls just say, don't have sex. You will get chlamydia and you will die. Yeah, no. <laughs> True, though. I mean, honestly, do you know anyone who survived chlamydia? Let's be honest. I'm kidding. Um, Mars did, I believe. Oh, that took a weird turn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this this movie is, is amazing. Uh, it didn't make it onto my top 50 list, but I, I, I do really like this movie. This is one of those that probably just missed out if I'd reached down and, and brought up some four-star movies into into my top 50 list for me I, i'd be interested to revisit this maybe it's aged even better but you know you talk about the, you horror movies that have a theme worth thinking about right like the reason that i go see horror movies generally speaking uh, ready or not might be the exception <laughs> which i just recently went and watched but the, this new type of horror movie i mean you get out us you know a quiet place even i think could could be lumped into there midsummer absolutely and this movie for sure is the themes that it leaves you thinking about and walking out of the theater with. And this idea of sex as uh, both dangerous and liberating is one that I think is fantastic to think about, especially as, you know, someone who, you know, was maybe less satisfied with the sex ed that I got it, you know, <laughs> granted still a private school at, at, you know, in Tennessee and, you know, time after time hearing about, the abstinence only education that a lot of states and, and local counties uh, use. And I think that this movie is a really interesting, um, you know, you talk about the sexual politics of the movie, is a really interesting counterpoint to the idea that um, that sex, yes, is absolutely, it can be dangerous. Things like getting a curse can happen to you, but we seek out these experiences as a way to escape death and are liberated in some ways. Uh, and really you talk, you talk about, does it even matter anymore that it is following them because yeah. they found each other. And I think that this movie has a lot more to say about that and a lot more to say about sex than, uh, that people generally think about. And it was often told to people. You're right. It's a coming of age movie. It honestly is. It's, it's kind of strange to think about that, but it is. And I think that, you know, a lot of what you're saying comes from the fact that the specter that is following them, it's not sex, it's, you know, adulthood. Um, and that's, uh, exemplified in the movie by, uh, you know, an act which we generally associate with sort of passing on into adulthood. Um, but I think that is one of the, you know, interesting things about the movie. Well, so that's got, all right, my number five, uh, I don't know if this counts as a genre film, but I think there's something really special about it and it has its own hook. And that is Birdman mm. directed by, uh, and Yari too, whose first name is Alejandro. Alejandro Gonzalez and Yari. Yes, there we go. Alejandro Gonzalez and Yari too. I don't know why I blanked on that all of a sudden, but you know, lead performance from Michael Keaton. Of course, some some very on the nose uh, allusions to his past careers in this movie, uh, or his past career as an actor in this movie. But also outstanding, outstanding, outstanding performances in this film from Emma Stone as well as Ed Norton. Uh, the hook that I was alluding to with this film is that it is. Cut cinema. Its cinematography is such, and, and its cuts are in, are such that the movie appears to be a single shot, except for one cut towards the end of the film after a very climactic moment. And it got me. It hooked me the first time I saw it. I think that I really loved both the on-screen wrestling that you see with this Michael Keaton's character with his past and his and what and where he currently is and his mental health and uh, his career. And then also thinking about like the meta narrative around, you know, what is Michael Keaton doing in this movie? I think that that's so cool. I love Inyari too. He's probably my favorite director. Him between him and Denny Villeneuve, 
and even Alfonso Cuarón, all Mexican directors. And I think that they are, I guess Denis Villeneuve is actually French. My bad. Yeah, Villeneuve. Um, yeah. He's French. Um, but all foreign directors, uh, and and I think some, some of, if not the best directors out there. And Inyaritu's vision for this film, uh, in the cinematography as well. You know, I talk about the film being cut together in the form of looking like essentially two shots. Uh, one really long one that takes place for most, of, you know, 90, 95% of the movie, and then this, you know, the final moments of the film is a new shot. But it's also just a lot of long shots because of that. It's not just the fact that it's seamlessly cut together in ways that uh, makes it look like one shot. It also has some brilliant cinematography work, long shots, tracking shots, all all the things that just really get me at my core uh, when I see them in a movie, and I love them. I love the cinematography. I love this production design. Most of this movie is taking place in New York City, but inside a theater on Broadway. And I think that the wrestling and, and, and internal performance that Michael Keaton gives, I know that you're not as big of a fan of this performance as I am, but I think that- Oh, he, I am. No, I love Oh, you it. are. I know yeah. that you're not as big a fan of the movie as I am, though, right? Or Well, finish what you're saying, yeah. Wait, I think the point is that the, the performance from Michael Keaton is the standard. I mean, I talk about great performances from Ed Norton and Emma Stone earlier, and uh, Emma Stone being his daughter, Ed Norton being uh, somebody that he's working with in the theater. I think that Michael Keaton here, he is the star of this show. Like, the movie is Birdman. He is Birdman. He's also not Birdman. It's really awesome. And the mental anguish that he goes through and the wrestling with his past, his present, and his mental health here, I think that I talked about it with Silver Lines Playbook. I talked about it in a couple of the other movies that we've already mentioned in my top 20 and in your top 20. And I think that this is the the quintessential best performance of someone wrestling with their own mental health on the screen that we saw in the 2010s. And those type of movies I find the most fascinating. And I think what Inyaritu was able to do with that story, uh, getting the best performance that he could out of Michael Keaton, and then also pairing that with this production design, the cinematography, and telling this beautiful, brilliantly shot story, it, it hits all the right notes for me. Yeah, so this was number 38 on my long list. So I do love the movie. Um, I think sure. maybe the the reason you felt like I felt differently was because uh, there is a sour taste in my mouth about this movie, and that is that it beat out the movie that I'm about to talk about as my number four movie um, of the decade for Best Picture. Um, but yeah, take nothing away from what Inyari 2 and the cast, and you know, as you've mentioned, the the wizard Emmanuel Lubezki uh, does behind the camera um, because it is... Uh, a, a wonderful movie that blew me away when I first saw it. Uh, 2014 was just such a great year for movies. Um, and yeah, this was, uh, this was one of those examples. Yeah. Um, I mean, one thing about 2014 that I was shocked by was that it didn't, it, it didn't have as many contenders for on my top 10 list, which honestly yeah. really shocked me. If I had to put a bet in before I made this list, I was like 2014, like this is gonna be like three movies on my list yeah. from that year. And it didn't turn out that way. It didn't turn out that way, but there's a bunch that it, you know did either make my top 20 or just outside the top 20 between Whiplash, uh, between Boyhood, between uh, I mean there's other movies that I'm just totally blanking on right now. Nightcrawler was made it in there, yeah. Nightcrawler, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I thought there was going to be more than just two, uh, but it was just two. Yeah, no, it's it's a great film, and you know you mentioned the the casting of Michael Keaton is so interesting. I think because there's some like satire of of blockbusters and superhero movies that are definitely going on within Birdman, and who yeah. better to cast in that than a guy who you know is most famously known for playing a superhero Batman? Uh, and he knocks it out of the park. I do think it's a crime that he lost the Oscar to Eddie Redmayne. Um, I like Eddie Redmayne. I liked Michael Keaton. More. Yeah, we'll never understand that. I think that this was a much more nuanced performance. Um, but yeah, um, a, a wonderful movie. Not not close to my top 10, but it is in my long list. Like I said, 38. Yeah. 
All right, Scott, let's go ahead and talk about that number four. You're just yeah, let's talk about the movie that should have won Best Picture in 2015. Uh, and that is Boyhood, uh, Richard Linklater's uh, magnum opus, 12 years in the making. Well, um, you might be challenging that in the, in the next 20 years. That's true, yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't think that uh, Merrily We Roll Along, Roll Along is going to be as personal as of a film as yeah. uh, Boyhood was to Richard Linklater. Unless um, you quit your job and move to Hollywood and start trying to write yeah. musicals. I think that this movie, you know, on paper is a stunt, but um, there are and there are a few directors who, you know, there there are a few directors who, if they had taken this on, it would the the end product would have just been a stunt. But I think Linklater is one of the few that could have pulled it off, uh, and he absolutely did that here with this uh, amazing movie that chronicles the life of Mason, uh, played by Eller Coltrane, uh, and his sister, played by Lorelai Linklater. Uh, Samantha and uh, his his mom and dad, uh, who are of course separated for the whole uh, course of the movie, but their relationship uh, is very interesting. Patricia Arquette plays the mom uh, in a Oscar-winning performance, and Ethan Hawke, I think, in an even more spectacular performance, plays Mason Senior, uh, the dad. And all four of these characters go through an arc in this movie, and th- I mean that is one of the great achievements. I think the movie is called Boyhood, right? We see Mason on the poster of the movie, but it's as much a story uh, of all these other three characters in the family as it is of Mason. Um, and I think that's one of the the great uh, joys of the film is watching how all of these characters develop in really surprising ways. Uh, you know, I talk about Ethan Hawke's character. You think when when the movie starts out, you really think you know exactly who this character is and where he's going. Uh, and yet, over the course of the nearly three hour runtime of this movie, he goes from like the stereotypical like deadbeat dad uh, to like married to this Christian woman, like uh, talking about baptizing uh, his new son, and like uh, you know. Has has become a good dad to Mason, who's giving him a lot of advice, and um, you know it's not something you saw going, but saw coming. But uh, you know you don't see things in life coming sometimes, uh, and I think this movie mirrors real life in such a spectacular way, kind of like what I talked about with Everybody Wants Some, the way that uh, it seizes on these little moments, right? Like we don't see some of the huge moments that we would expect to see in a coming of age movie like this. Like we don't see Mason's graduation when we see things that happen before and after the graduation. We don't see him walking across the stage. We don't see him like losing his virginity or his first kiss or any of that. Um, You know, these things you expect to see in coming of age movies. Um, It's like life just happens, right? Uh, And you don't know the moments that are going to stick with you. Um, And so we have these moments in the movies that in the movie that sometimes seem mundane. And, you know, like I said before, maybe some of them are mundane, uh, but maybe some of them turn into point. something that you never expected, right? That's the point. Uh, you know, and, and these characters, like I think about his manager at the um, the fast food restaurant where he yeah. works later in life, uh, who is just sort of this really surprising character who, you know, he, he just, you just think he's another like stereotypical boss character who, um, you know, tells Mason that he believes in him and blah, 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 blah. And then he shows up at the graduation party and gives a really like lovely speech about Mason. And uh, it's just like, you don't know the moments that are going to matter to you. You don't know the people who are going to matter to you in the end. Um, and I think Linklater captures real life so well. And the mo- be- because of the way the movie is, because it is just that collection of moments it really sneaks up on you, the emotional impact of the movie, I think. Uh, I, I think for a long time, you just sort of coast along with it. Um, and then by the end of the movie, you know, by the last 30, 40 minutes, I think you will be surprised at how emotionally affected you are. You know, I talk about the graduation party. I think to me, one of the most devastating scenes in the movie is when 
Mason leaves his mom to go off to college and yeah. uh, Patricia Arquette amazingly uh, acted scene just talks, you know, breaks down and just says, you know, basically is coming to terms with like, my kids are all off to college now. I don't have a husband. Uh, you know, the next thing that's going to happen for me in life is to die. Um, and Mason says, you know, you got a few more years in there before that. And she's just like, you know, I thought there would be more like that's that's all I'm feeling right now is I thought there would be more. And that just kind of like will rip your heart out. Yeah. Um, and not something that you expect to walk into. And and that message yeah. be one of the one of the most salient ones that comes out. I mean, there's a handful. Right. But not one of the ones that you expect to be left with at the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the ending of the movie is great, too, with them looking out at Devil's Canyon, I believe it is. Um, uh, and or maybe it's Death Valley. I'm not sure. Um, and, you know. The, the girl that Mason has met, ta- has met talking about how um, maybe everything is happening right now. And it's just like that, uh, you know, that great sort of philosophical link later moment that uh, breaks out when you're not expecting it. Um, too and earnest, it, maybe. No, no. He, he, he earns it after the two, two hours and 40 minutes he puts us through. Sure. Um, I think uh, it's a spectacular achievement that, you know, obviously he's going to try to equal it with Merrily We Roll Along now 20 years, but I'm not sure that he will ever be able to um, equal what he did in Boyhood and that a movie will ever be able to capture coming of age in the way that this movie did because we literally watched the characters come of age. Uh, and I think you yep. can't, as much as that is like just the nature of the way the movie is made, I think you can't deny uh, that just that aspect of watching the characters age uh, does play a role in how you feel about the movie. And uh, it's, it's spectacular. Yeah. It, I mean, it is spectacular uh, period. It's, it's such an accomplishment. I mean, when you say that no, no director, you know, tries to achieve that feat, it's true. The only other person who's tried to do it is Linklater again here when he started Merrily We Go Along. Uh, so it's a wonderful movie. It, it's not as up as high up there on my list. It's in the 20s, and then I already mentioned it, uh, maybe 24, but it's still great. I'd recommend it 100%. I think yeah. that – oh, good. I will say that this movie might have even been higher, but there is one moment in the movie that rings false to me uh, involving the – And it sticks out, right? It sticks out because – It does, because, because the rest of how the, movie the rest so of authentic, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. The movie with the, the guy – the Hispanic gentleman Crazy. who's cleaning their gutters um, and – or working on their house or something, and, yeah. uh, you know – Patricia Arquette gives him some advice, like you should go to college or whatever. And he pops up like out of the blue later in the movie when they're in a restaurant. It's like, you know, you you really spoke to me with that advice. And I went to college and all this stuff. And it rings false. But like you said, it stands out so much because the rest of the movie is so authentic. Yeah, that's fair to say. We're really nitpicking here, but that's what you have to do when you get this high on the list. It's true. And number four on my list, you talked about um, maybe there's another superhero movie that's (laughs) higher on my list uh, in the best of the decade. Heart of the Journey is the end. Heart of the Journey is the end. We're not quite to the end of this list yet, but we did get to the end earlier this year of the first era of the MCU, and the conclusion of that era was Avengers Endgame. You know, somehow, Scott, I mentioned this on our episode where we reviewed it earlier this year, that this movie had the highest expectations you could possibly imagine for a movie. And I'm not saying that it... The expectations have never been higher for any other movie. I just think it's it's been on par with the highest expectations you could have for a film. And yet somehow, as hype as I was, when I walked into that theater on Thursday night to see that movie with you know a packed house, it surpassed all those expectations. It 
is not a perfect film like some of these other movies. Uh, a lot of the other movies we are talking about. It's not a perfect film. It has some flaws, uh, very minor flaws in my opinion. But what this movie was able to achieve and the emotional impact that it had from multiple directions, I think sets it head and shoulders above every other superhero movie, including Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse for me. I think that the emotional impact that Spider-Verse had is notable and significant, but I think that the emotional impact that Avengers Endgame have, along with everything else that it was able to achieve, really just sets this apart. So directed by uh, Joe and Anthony Joe and Anthony Russo, the Russo brothers, you know, of course, making making their fame with Community, I think it was, or, yeah. or one of one of the sitcoms on like NBC or ABC or one of the network sitcoms. And then Kevin Feige just liking what he saw, I guess, and hiring them on to do Winter Soldier and then Civil War and then, of course, Avengers Infinity War, concluding their quadrilogy of movies with Avengers Endgame. And the three-hour runtime, I was a little bit hesitant about like, how are they possibly going to fill three hours of time? Uh, and they did it. They filled it. You know, you talk about, you know, a movie being multiple acts and there's three clear acts in this movie. It's getting the gang back together. It's then, you know, actually executing on this plan to bring everyone back from the snap. And the final act, maybe the best act in a movie, the most absorbing, the most absorbed I felt in a movie, definitely this year, maybe in any other year of this decade, uh, the final act, the final battle with Thanos uh, from 2014, so a different Thanos. And it's just incredible. I mean, I think the moment of the decade, the moment of the <laughs> the moment of the century, the moment of the millennium might be portals. I mean, an absolutely on your left. Incredible scene. I like you say that, and I'm literally getting chills right now. I know, yeah. about it. I the, I've watched so many reactions of yeah. like theaters of you know reacting to that moment. It's it's one and I people that I told when I was going to go see this movie three times opening weekend, people thought I was crazy. And Scott, I wouldn't trade any of those opportunities in the world for the same reaction. Every single time I saw this movie from the, in the theater, mm. the, the audible gasps when, you know, huge spoilers here. I'm sorry. For some reason you haven't seen the almost $3 billion movie in game at this point. Um, you know, when cap grabs the hammer Mjolnir for the first time, the gasp uh, and like, actually not even gasp the pure, you know, pin drop silence in the film when he said, when Cap says Avengers assemble, catches the hammer, everyone charges. I'm talking about it. I'm getting chills. The movie's incredible. That scene is probably the most memorable scene that I will ever have in a movie theater in my life. I think it's fair. I honestly think that it's fair to say maybe it's early. We'll see. Check back in a decade. Until Dark Ray and Rise of the Skywalker. <laughs> I mean, maybe. We'll see. We'll see. I just don't think it's going to have the same effect. And, you know, I'm focusing on one particular moment when I'm talking about this film. But that belies the incredible part of all these narrative arcs. I mean, you've been with Iron Man, with Captain America, with um, Natasha Romanoff, with Black Widow, with Hawkeye, with all these original Avengers. You've been with them for so many movies. Of course, not all of them have been in every movie, but these main characters, you've they, you've been with them for almost a decade now. I mean, going back to the first Avengers movie in 2011, I think it was, maybe yeah. 2012. Uh, um, 2012, I think. Yeah, 2012, that, that sounds right. Um, 2012, so you've been with all these characters for at least seven years. And it's, you know, not all of them, of course, are gone at the end of this movie, but a lot of them saw their stories, their arcs within the MCU come to a close. And they're gorgeous. I think that, you know, I talked earlier this year, 
on the podcast that Robert Downey Jr. should get a Best Actor nomination. I still feel that way. I know we have a strong second half of the year coming. But I don't think it would be out of line for Robert Downey Jr. to get a Best Actor nomination for this movie specifically, but also for his role in the MCU altogether. I think it's absolutely spectacular. I think that maybe even surpassing in terms of narrative arc, Captain America's story in some ways is even more satisfying than Iron Man's and his conclusion. Like, yes, maybe the end of his arc is one of the things that I think is the maybe the only thing that I maybe have a complaint about in the movie in terms of the logic tying together for everything. But even even now, I think I've come to terms with that and maybe it's not fully explained or I didn't immediately get it, but I think that I get it now and I raise my hands and say, you know what? He deserved it. Just like, you know, you give, you give movies free passes for being cheesy or for being nostalgic or for all these other things that, that these movies do after they earn it. I mean, this movie, this series, uh, this universe has earned that right to be able to give Cap that send off. And, you know, I know one of your favorite scenes and I think stands out to me on multiple rewatches uh, even more so is of course, going back to Tony and talking about Iron Man, the scene with his dad uh, when they go back in time to get mm, the Pym particles. So yeah, amazing scene between him and you'll know the actor because I'm Stanley John Tucci. Slattery. John Slattery, yeah, Stanley. I get those two mixed up from Spotlight, whatever. Um, yeah, it's just beautiful. And then, you know, I, there's so many other characters to talk about. And I've been sitting here probably talking about this movie again for 10 minutes already. But I think Black Widow's arc in particular is extremely uh, affecting. I think that maybe less so, but still significantly, you have Hawkeye, Jeremy Renner's character. A very a very touching arc, especially as the movie opens with them, because everyone was like, "Where's Hawkeye been in Avengers: Infinity War?" And you immediately understand where Hawkeye has been when Endgame starts. Um, and the you know I talk about gasps, and then another gasp in the movie that really <laughs> that really shocks you. I think the first time you see it, and if you don't know anything about what the movie's going to be, because they did such a good job keeping spoilers secret for this film, is after they cut Thanos' head off at the beginning of the film. Yeah. Five years, and then you know, it, you know, go for the head. Exactly, you know, that's a that's a gasp. And then even before that, right when after that opening scene where I was talking about Hawkeye, and you get the you get the fade, you know, the blackout screen that just says five years later. People were like, "Oh my god, like yeah. five years later." That's not what I thought they were going to do with this movie. Oh yeah, it's just inc- it's just incredible. I think from start to finish, um, a sh- beautiful movie. Yeah, it was in the mid thirties on my list. It's easy the best, easily the best MCU movie for me for. You know, the reasons that you've stated, I think, you know, Scott, in a couple of months here, we're going to talk about this movie and Oscar uh, talks about whether it's going to get nominated and there's going to be a lot of discussion of that. And I think it certainly deserves to be nominated in a lot of categories. But for me, the main uh, category where I would like to see it get nominated in is best director, because I think what Joe and Anthony Russo uh, have done uh, is, you know, what one of the most ambitious and yet successful Uh, directing jobs that has ever been done on film uh, to delicately balance all of the different moving pieces and, 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 you know, moving parts that they had to deal with um, in, you know, as you described uh, a a movie that has been 10 years and, you know, dozens and dozens of characters in the making. Um, And yet we never lose sight of what's going on or what the stakes are. Um, It's, it's an incredible piece of directing. Um, and, and those I, battle sequences in particular. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and so I think they they absolutely deserve recognition for what they've been able to do in four movies now in the MCU, uh, which are you know f- among the four best in the MCU. Um, and yeah, this is this is a cultural event uh, that people will uh, look back on fondly. You know, I think about like uh, Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace, and how that was a cultural event. Um, Even Episode Seven. 
yeah, episode seven too, but but uh, episode one in particular, one that people will look back on and remember more for the event and not for the uh, you know product that came out of it, the movie that came out of it. I, I can't, I don't think that people will say the same for Endgame. I think they'll look back at this event and uh, say that you know the the hype and the event and everything leading up to this movie uh, was greeted with a movie that uh, truly matched that hype. Um, because that's what the Russo brothers did. Um, and it's yeah. it's uh, a moment, Yeah, like you said, who knows when we will see another uh, moment or movie event like this. I, even the Rise of Skywalker is not going to measure up to this, I don't think. No, I don't um, think. Just because of how, how many years in the making in this was. And uh, yeah, it's it's a spectacular film. Yeah, I... Don't get me started again. I'll just I'll start talking about it for another twenty minutes. Uh, yeah. There's so much movie to talk about. That's the thing that you could just mention your favorite scenes, and that would take up thirty minutes because there's so much movie. It's true. It's true. All right, Scott. We got three more movies each. I think that they're all six are going to be different. So <laughs> here we go. Oh, the go God ahead. tier. Um, go ahead. Number three, Scott. I think I'm going to disappoint you here. The Florida Project. Mm-hmm. Um, Sean Baker's film. It didn't quite make my number one uh, slot, uh, but no slide on this incredible film. Uh, you know, Scott, I think what we're learning with this list is that I just love movies that don't have any plot uh, because this is another now, movie. This movie has plot. Eh, yeah, but I think it's it's a slice of life movie um, where there's not it's not like a traditional way to tell a story of like there's a beginning, middle and end. Right. You're you're what you're watching is a month there are a few weeks in the lives of these people. Uh, and there's much more life that has happened before this movie starts. And there's much more life that will happen after the ending of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as you, you kind of talked about, it gives uh, light and gives voice to a group of people on the margins of society uh, and physically on the margins of, you know, paradise, the happiest place on earth, Disney, Disney world in this movie uh, that really just do not get the attention that they deserve uh, in pop culture or from our government for that matter. Um, and gives them a voice that, uh, they, they have, but are not allowed to express very often. Um, and it it tells the story in such a tender way. You know, I'll never forget walking out of the theater of this movie and listening to a woman in the lobby who's saying to her friend, you know, that about the, the mother character, Haley played by Bria Venate, uh, you know, she was such a terrible mother. Uh, and I remember you telling me that story after I, I watched think it. It just completely misses the point of the movie, right? Because, yeah, okay, this this mother character is is raw and and sometimes off putting and real, but she loves her daughter, right? And the things that she has to do, she doesn't do because she enjoys doing them. She does she she has to do them because the system has made it so that this is what people in her position have to do to survive, uh, and she's doing what she do does to support her daughter who she loves, and I think. Um, to to look at it in a simplistic way like that just sort of makes me shake my head and breaks my heart a little bit because the fact that you could sit there and watch the whole movie and just completely miss the point um i think is kind of sad but um yeah it's it's a it's a devastating but it's also a um it's an it's a hopeful film like i think one of the things i love about this movie is that uh you know it's another movie of moments right like a link later film but a lot of the moments seized upon like these little them trying to find the little bits of joy in their life, um, because obviously they live such a hard life and so much of their life is sad and them just trying to make it from day to day. Uh, but the little moments of joy that they get to experience. And I think that's what, why, you know, the the 
setup of the movie as you know viewing everything through the eyes of this eight-year-old child uh, played by brooklyn prince works so well right because um there there's a certain naivety there to the overarching situation uh there you know they're seizing upon these moments like when they spy on the woman at the pool and and just giggle um or you know when they play hide and go seek or uh when they go get ice cream cones um you know these moments to them are, are are as meaningful as uh you know the overarching narrative that is going on and i think uh the way that it focuses upon those little moments of joy um makes what happens in the end so much more heartbreaking it really twists the knife in yeah. um and but i think that's what makes the ending you know which is one of the one of my reservations about this movie when i first saw it the the last two minutes of the movie i think it makes it work because you have such a devastating moment that you i think to keep tone consistent pure joy that is unmatched uh by anything else that we've seen in the film thus far um and yeah there there are so many layers to what's going on here i haven't even talked about uh the innkeeper character played by willem dafoe um truly one of the uh you know most good-hearted uh you know optimistic characters you will find in uh any of these movies the the belief and uh you know, encouragement that he gives to Haley and, uh, and Moni, you know, he, he, he has to be the innkeeper, right? Like he has to, um, he has to do his duty and demand that they pay and all of this stuff. Uh, but he also cares about them and, uh, wants only the best for them. And, you know, one of the most amazing scenes in the movie is, uh, this scene where this child molester or, you know, what who is suggested to be a child molester a pedophile yeah come yeah pedophile comes to the motel and is walking up to the kids and willem defoe sees it and you know slowly guides the man over to the soda machines and you know remains composed the whole time uh and then the man buys the soda or whatever and he's like aren't you gonna drink it and the man starts to drink it and he just takes the soda and throws it down and like the rage suddenly explodes out of him he throws his wallet at him and says you know get out of here and everything uh it, it's a wonderful scene that really says all there is to be said uh about that character who uh has such a a tender, you know, note to him that you don't expect to see in this type of character. Uh, and Defoe plays it beautifully uh, as someone who is not necessarily known for always playing like the most likable characters in movies. I was going to uh, say that. Yeah. It's a wonderful choice. Um, and yeah, Brooklyn Prince, Bria Venate. Uh, it's a slice of life movie about uh, a life that we don't get to uh, experience that often. And that's a shame, but uh, I, I'm so glad that Sean Baker, uh, you know, had this vision and, he uh, he wanted to give more light to this group of people. And I don't know, you know, how much impact the movie will have on society, uh, but it certainly had a great impact on me and on a lot of people who have viewed this movie. Um, and yeah, it's it's a beautiful uh, tribute to what independent film can accomplish. Uh, and I love it so much. It could have easily been number one, but uh, it's here at number three. It could have easily been what I predicted. It to be. <laughs> I changed it last night. No, I'm kidding. That would have been funny. I mean, you didn't know that I was going to guess it was your number. No, one. I did not. That no. wouldn't have mattered anyway. Nope. Ah, oh, bummer, 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 bummer. That's okay. Uh, no, be beautiful film. Uh, I I share your well initial reservation on the final scene of the movie. Uh, I think that probably is what doesn't quite put it into my top ten. I think sure. that's a little bit incongruous, but at the same time, you can say that it earns that moment. Even if you don't always necessarily think that it will hundred percent make sense in the narrative, it made sense to Sean Baker and maybe he earned it as well. So. Yeah, abs absolutely. Uh, it's, it's a masterpiece. 
Yeah, Willem Dafoe. It's great. All right, Scott, my number three, and keeping with the theme of disappointments of what is our number one, it seems like number three is where we're both coming up here, unfortunately. All right. Yeah, number three is going to be Inception for me. Yeah. I'm all the way back to 2010, uh, directed by the infamous, the probably the only man in Hollywood who can get a 200 to $400 million budget for a movie that's not a comic book movie, and that is Christopher Nolan. Of course, he's done his fair share of comic book movies. He did the Dark Knight trilogy. But this movie, uh, well, I should say, the one I was alluding to is that Tenet apparently has a 200 to $300 million budget or something insane like that uh, coming, out, coming out next year. I don't know what they're spending on either. It's just a spy movie, for goodness sake. Um, <laughs> but it's Christopher Nolan. But it's Christopher Nolan's spy movie, so who knows what's happening in it. Uh, but no, it's Inception, an absolutely brain-bending movie. I remember I saw this a couple times in theaters back in 2010 when it came out. And I remember the the key thing, I didn't see it opening weekend, and there I had several friends who had seen it already before I saw it, and they're like, you know, like, you just can't get everything the first time. Uh, I didn't feel that way when I watched it. I felt like I'd gotten most things, and I was really, really, really satisfied with the ending, which goes against what a lot of my friends felt, and probably their oh. key frustrations with the movie. Uh, I think that me and, my, me and those friends at the time differ strongly on the types of endings that we like. I, I love... Uh, open-ended endings. Yeah, to one of the best for- cliffhangers of all time, yeah. Yeah, cliffhanger endings for me, I think, really get it. I always get a shit-eating grin on my face whenever I get a, a cliffhanger ending that's smart and clever and deserves it. And this movie, uh, maybe, may, I mean, you may say maybe the best cliffhanger ending of all time. For me right now, the best cliffhanger ending of all time. I think that it's just, it's an amazing movie. I haven't even started to talk about the the performances yet, but Leonardo DiCaprio, as any listener of our podcast will know, my favorite actor in Hollywood, puts in a fantastic performance here. But there's also a laundry list of incredible cast members uh, to go along with it. So you have Marion Cotillard, who plays uh, Leo DiCaprio's Cobb's wife in this film. Mal. Also, yes, Mal. Uh, you also have Ellen Page, who plays... Uh, is she the architect? I can't remember. I think so. What, yeah. What what her nickname is? Yeah. In the movie, but you also have this random performance called Tom Hardy, uh, who's kind of like their gun, like ends up being their weapons specialist in a way. And you know, you talk about heist movies and variations on heist yeah. movies. I mean, this is like the ultimate Christopher Nolan heist movie. I mean, it's only Christopher Nolan could come up with an idea like this. A dream. With the thing you're dream. stealing is dreams. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you're not even dreams. It's ideas. It's the, yeah. You are you are stealing and or in this case of the movie. Uh, in planting an idea in someone's head. And Chris Nolan always, you know, his format of films often seems like one one for me and one for them kind of way. And this was, this was, I think, fair to say this is one of his one for me movies, but ended up being for all of us because it's just an incredible film. I mean, the Dark Knight trilogy, maybe one, one, for, one for them and getting to interchange this between the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises really set for something absolutely incredibly special. I haven't even mentioned all the people in the cast. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is also in this film. I think he does a great job. And this idea of a heist of you need to prevent someone or you need when someone takes off in one country and lands in another, by the time that that happens, you have to have planted this idea in his head so that X person will sell X corporation 
And it's it's a very nebulous thing. I can't explain it in 30 seconds. But it's explained incredibly well in the movie. You understand the stakes and you understand how important all the different pieces of the puzzle are, whether it's people, whether it's this idea, whether it's this mission, this job. You understand how important it is to each character, why it's important to the characters, who they're, you know, where the loyalties lie, why they're doing these things. And there are so few filmmakers. I won't say Nolan's the only one who can do it. Maybe he's the only one who can come up with this idea. Yeah. But there's so few filmmakers who can really hold all the pieces to the puzzle, put them all together, and leave you at the end of this movie with that shit-eating grin that I was talking about. I mean, it's just an absolutely sensational movie. It has not gotten old any time that I've watched it over the last 10 years. It's incredible. If you haven't seen it, please, 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 please go watch it. It's spectacular. Yeah, it's in the low 20s on my list, Scott. Uh, to your point, I think one of the great achievements is, you know, how does anyone even think of this concept? Like, I, I think only Christopher Nolan could do something like this. I mean, it's yeah. it's the same thing he did in Memento to, to an extent, which is um, a movie that I love even more than Inception, maybe even more than The Dark Knight. But um, he... he sure you know, in his career, he he's known for like, he, yeah, he makes the big blockbusters, right? He'll, he'll have a Dark Knight trilogy. He'll have a Dunkirk in there. And then in the middle of it, he creates some sort of mind bending uh, experiment that only he could make. He makes a movie that he wants to make. Uh, and I don't know that it we have to everyone, right? Yeah. I don't know that we have yeah. another director who, um, you know, maybe you could say Tarantino, maybe Peel is getting to that point uh, who is, can put their own license on a, uh, movie and, and create something original uh, that has the same uh, hook and the same appeal as, you know, if he made a Batman movie, like you go to it because it's a Christopher Nolan movie, uh, not because it's, you know, Tenet or whatever the movie is. Um, and Inception I think you can say that people go to Tarantino movies because they're Tarantino movies. Yeah. I just, you know, call me crazy, but I just don't think Tarantino is the same kind of mass appeal director that Nolan is. Just no one else I've ever encountered has been able to capture that yeah. mass appeal even in movies that are totally like out there crazy wild i think if you look at the box office numbers that would probably support you um for sure uh but yeah uh i i think this is another movie that i loved the, the loved the theater going experience particularly i think the second time i saw it which was in imax and we took my friend brandon um who had not seen the film yet um and well, i'll right, just with you guys I don't think so. I think it was myself, Aaron and Brandon. Um, and we went to see this movie in IMAX at Chattanooga. And I'll, I'll just never forget watching Brandon's like reaction to the movie. And like maybe halfway through, he just looks over at both of us and goes, this is amazing. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it is amazing. Oh, uh, just wait till you get to the end. Oh, um, that's great. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's what you want when you go to the cinema right there. Like that's, that's as much joy as watching the movie itself. Um, and Inception uh, is, you know, it, it's it's one of Nolan's best. Um, and yeah, it it's in my top 30, which feels crazy to say that it, it's not any higher than that. But uh, maybe just age hasn't, I haven't revisited as much as some of these other movies, but um, I guess I need to do that. We're both back in Chattanooga. Sure, let's do it. Um, in a minute, it let's too. go ask him to play it at the IMAX. They could sell it at the theater, I guarantee you. Oh, yeah, totally. All right, Scott, down to the top two. I know which two movies are oh, left. I don't know what order they're in. I hope I hope they're in a specific order so I don't have to eat my words from before we started yeah, recording. I'm getting, 
I'm going to disappoint you again, Scott. Uh, number two, Spotlight. Um, oh, talked about it before. Um, uh, I don't know that I have much to add. Um, I, I don't know why you're so anguished about my number one choice because... I'm not um, anguished about it. I'm more anguished the fact that I stuck my foot in my mouth before yeah, you we started. Did. Um, uh, you did. But uh, anyway, Spotlight, amazing movie for all the reasons I said. I think one little uh, thing which I'll just briefly mention that I didn't mention before. You know, I talk about how this is a great Boston movie about how... Um, you know, the Catholic church and, and this whole scandal pervades the lives of these characters. And I think, you know, to, to close the loop on that, the other interesting thing that the movie suggests is that, you know, the, the way that this scandal gets discovered, right, is because two outsiders come in, right? You have Garab Mitch Garabedi and the lawyer played by Stanley Tucci. And then you have Marty Baron, who is the New York Jew who doesn't like baseball, um, as the quote goes in the movie, uh, that the guy who... It, in so, in so many ways is the antithetical to everyone else in the Boston Globe office uh, played beautifully by Leo Schreiber. Um, and, and it's these two guys who come in and actually get everything going. You know, Garabedian has been fighting this fight for years uh, with no attention, uh, but then Baron comes in and, you know, he, he gets the spotlight crew to actually look at this story. Uh, and that's what kicks everything off. So I think that's another interesting layer too. Uh, an amazingly, uh, amazingly told movie. Again, a masterpiece and unostentatious storytelling. Um, thought about putting it at number one, but uh, well, we'll get to my number one in a sec. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's our one movie overlap for a reason. It's a great film. Yeah. All right, Scott. Right, what's your number two? My number two, Arrival. And talk about Denny Villeneuve from uh, earlier being one of the best directors right now. One of my favorite directors at the time. And so far, I mean, as much as I also liked The Revenant, I thought it was an amazing piece of... I'm sorry, that was in yard too. My bad. Um, as, as much as I like Prisoners, which is just outside my top 20, it's number 21. This movie and so... And BR 2049. And, yeah, and Blade Runner 2049. I, that was a little bit further down the list. But um, yeah, no, those two movies. And then as much as Dune next year or the year after, whenever it actually officially gets released, I still mm -hmm. think it's out in 2020 right now. But as much as that might end up being his magnum opus, I think Arrival, current like right now, is his magnum opus in terms of out there ideas, a little bit less uh, accessible maybe to your standard movie going audience. It's not this you know cyberpunk franchise or uh, cyberpunk franchise that already kind of existed that you're tagging something onto, making a sequel, a very different sequel and a sequel that I liked a lot more than the original, but a sequel nonetheless. And it's not Prisoners, which you know on its surface, although I think it's a lot, it's a lot more than this, but is a really well done mystery mystery thriller. I mean, a la when we talk about Searching, uh, being on the surface a very standard mystery thriller, Prisoners in some ways. Is, is also the, the same very standard mystery thriller, but has a lot more going on, less so than searching, but a lot more going on and, and um, makes for just captivating viewing. And I think that Arrival, one of the things that puts it at number two on my list is not just the two performances from Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner, and also to an extended degree, Forrest Whitaker as well. I think that it's the way that Denny Villeneuve tells this particular story. I have not watched a movie where I felt like bit by bit, you know, drop by drop, I get, I understand a little bit more. And then there's this one moment, the first time you see this movie where everything clicks, it's like a light switch flips on and you know what's going on in the film. And I've never felt that way about any other movie that I've watched where now I get what's going on. This is a perfectly, perfectly, perfectly told story in the way that it unfurls itself and unravels itself in your mind because you're getting all these cut together shots. You don't know necessarily 
what's going on or what the timeline is and how it works between these different shots. But eventually you understand why. And it's before the movie tells you why. I'd be willing to bet that it's before the movie tells you why. And so before the movie tells you exactly what's going on, you have discovered what's going on. You have been able to infer what exactly is happening. And that's the beauty of this film, even more so than its spectacular acting performances. And spectacular concept, this idea that these aliens uh, have set down all across the earth and we know we need to figure out what they're doing. They're not hostile, they're not doing anything, they're just there and we need to figure out why they're there. And then these, you know, the conflict that happens between humans and aliens, the conflict that happens between different people on the base, between Amy Adams and the military, uh, between Jeremy Renner, and, Jeremy Renner and Amy Adams' character. Everything about this movie is perfect to me. It's great, it's beautiful, and there's just no other movie that I've seen, I'm not saying it's not out there, um, that I've experienced the same as the way I experienced Arrival the first time. Yeah, Scott, of all the movies you've mentioned on your list, this is the one which I need to rewatch of the most because yeah. saw it after it came out, not in theaters, but after it came out on VOD. Um, liked it a lot. Um, I think it is hypnotically captivating in the way that all of Villeneuve's movies are, uh, except for Sicario. For some reason, that one uh, never resonated with me. Yeah, maybe, maybe at the time it reminded me too much of the movie contact which is a fabulous sci-fi movie from the 90s um i think there are some similarities in the plot but you know seeing how how much you talk about this movie and how effusively you talk about it does make me want to go rewatch it especially you know that that what after watching blade runner 2049 kind of uh, renewed my uh faith in in villeneuve uh, i want to go back and you know try to catch maybe something that i missed the first uh, time when i saw it but um happy to see it so high on your list uh because He's, he's one of the the great original movie filmmakers that we have working in the movies right now. Yeah, between him and, and Yari, too, I think that they are just outstanding original filmmakers. Of course, Tarantino um, as well. Sure. Uh, and Nolan, for that matter, too. We just talked about him. But no, I the think list yeah, the list does go on. But we should treasure them because there's fewer of them than, uh, than we necessarily imply by rattling off four or five names. Um, no, I think that I rewatched this movie last year with someone who hadn't seen the movie before. And as much as I couldn't, of course you can't recapture the same experience of watching it the first time because you know what's going on in the movie. It's still very enjoyable to watch, don't get me wrong, but that light switch moment doesn't happen for you once you understand what's going on with the movie anymore. And so to, if you can rewatch that movie with someone who hasn't seen the movie and doesn't know what's going on, I think that you are able to recapture some of that enjoyment yeah. uh, as they un unravel what's going on in their own mind as, as the movie develops and the story plays out. And I, yeah, it, that's one thing that I can add that I think that at, like keeps that experience similar to the first time if you can do that. But I also think just on its own, if you rewatch it, it's, it's still, it uh, stays good. It holds up, yeah. Um, all, all right, right Scott, Scott, are we there? We're there. Number one, I know what it is. Uh, I, uh, yeah, go ahead, just bear, bury the axe Vice. with me. Okay. <laughs> Um, 10 years in the making, Scott. 10 years in the making, Scott. Um, so many hundreds and hundreds of movies to choose from. And yet th there can only be one, much like Highlander, there can only be one. Uh, and, you know, I'm not sure, Scott, that there's any other movie in which the theme song uh, also functions as a review of the film. Um, but that is the truth about my favorite movie of the decade, because truly everything is awesome about the Lego movie um, from directors, Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Uh, Scott, this movie I think exemplifies what I want filmmakers to take away uh, from the 2010s decade. And, and something that, 
you know, has been a theme of our discussion on this episode, and that's creativity matters. Creativity is not dead yet. Um, And that is the whole message behind the Lego movie, right? You have the juxtaposition of President Business, uh, voiced by Will Will Ferrell, and the rigid structure that he wants to impose upon Bricksburg and, uh, you know, with use the craggle to to end the world um and it, it's mirrored by this sort of branching narrative that's happening in the real world where you know Will Farrell playing the dad of this family um you know wants his his lego set to to be be so pristine and so impeccably constructed and and nothing out of order um and you know lashes out at his son when his son tries to create uh when his son tries to create i mean full stop um and uh, you know, th- that's even, even better is, you know, the fact that you have like the sister who, who, you know, p- comes in more in the second movie, uh, played by Brooklyn Prince in the second movie, but, uh, you know, that like the characters of Unikitty, for example, these really absurdly constructed Lego characters, um, which, you know, seem like they don't fit in, but fit in because they are creative. Um, and I think that that, message is is something so unexpected that you would get from a movie with a freaking brand name in the title i mean like everyone else that you know when this movie came out i thought this is the most cynical cash grab like this is purely going to be a commercial for legos and you know what you got was sort of setting the tone for what lord and miller would do uh for the rest of the decade whether it was the jump street movie some of the best like mainstream comedies of the decade whether it was spider-man into the spider-verse um and they didn't direct those but Right. But they, you know, wrote and produced those. Um, and I think that that movie has their stamp all over it. Um, you know, to the point of the Lego movie, I think a lot of the themes and uh, just the general tone and zippiness of the Lego movie uh, is matched in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. But uh, nothing to me will match the uh, experience of being introduced to this, you know, tone of movie that I've never seen before. This movie that moves so quickly, uh, yet is so smart and so funny. Uh from beginning to end, not just for kids. Um, I think adults will probably enjoy it more, but there's stuff there for kids. And like I said, the messages I think um, should really be hammered home to kids because, um, you know, this is a huge developmental stage of kids' life. And what what they hear from their parents and from their authority figures at this stage define the way that they live their life. And so they need to be told that uh, creativity is good and that uh, creativity um, is something that is still valued in our society, even when our government um, is constantly defunding arts programs and saying that, you know, creativity and, and stopping movies like The Hunt from getting made or from getting released. Um, when, when we're living in a society that, uh, you know, is trying to stifle creativity, I think we need a movie like the Lego movie more than ever. Um, and, you know, so th- that's sort of the the overarching macro themes of the movie that I think work. If we're just talking about this movie on a visceral level, um, it's perfect. It's it is political satire, it is comedy, it is sci-fi, it is action, and it does all of them so incredibly well. Um, I think that uh, there are some there are just some weird uh, stretches of humor in this movie that you would never see uh, in another animated movie another movie ostensibly targeted at kids i mean what other kids movie quote unquote kids movie are you going to see the 2002 nba all-stars uh playing a part in uh like you see in this movie um and the the zippy tone the incredibly constructed 
uh, Lego environments, which like every time I watch this movie, I'm more and more blown away by uh, the way that these environments look and what they were able to do with the animation. Um, it makes me want to go play with Legos, even though I wasn't a huge Lego kid. I mean, that's one of the most amazing things maybe about the fact that I love this movie so much is that I wasn't a huge Lego kid. So that sort of nostalgia doesn't exactly hit me, but uh, they have a fun time too with all the different licensed uh, you know, products that uh, Lego has come out with, whether it's Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter. Yeah, exactly. They all they all play a part in the movie. They're all the master builders. And you have an unbelievable voice cast as well. I mean, Liam Neeson needs to do more comedy. Uh, and this movie, to me, is uh, the, the best example of that because he gives a hilarious performance as good cop, bad cop. Um, in this movie, you have Morgan Freeman, uh, who, you know, is playing God sort of he's playing like the the master builder mentor who uh, guides uh, wild style played by Elizabeth Banks and Emmett played by Chris Pratt um, on their journey and you know dies and then comes back to them in a ghost vision and says I didn't get to finish what I was saying because I died um, which is you know hilarious uh, but but the whole voice cast you know Chris Pratt I think is absolutely perfect for the sort of um, gleefully like effervescent almost you know often to a fault uh you know like this um criminally like pure and gullible uh person that um that uh that Emmett is you know starts off the movie as you know you know he, he probably more naive and uh sort of finds himself cast out by you know the guys that he works with and uh the society that he lives in he he's he's a tool right he's like he's been brainwashed by the government to some extent he's watching where are my pants and laughing his head off every night even though it's the same um you know the same show every night and he's listening to everything is awesome even though it's the only song that plays on the radio all the time um and watching him discover that he too is special um just like Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, right? Like just like what Miles Morales um, discovers in this movie uh, is just true joy. And uh, again, some, a message that kids and adults can take away. Um, it is the Charlie Chaplin-esque comedy of our, of our, that's maybe the best uh, comparison point I can draw. Um, it is a masterpiece and uh, a movie that, uh, I will always hold close to my heart as not just my favorite of the decade, but one of my favorite movies of all time. And the Oscars can go screw themselves. Thank you. Good night. All right, then. Now, just uh, just outside my <laughs> top 20, I think it's 33 on my list. It didn't have the extent, the you know, the same Black extent Man. of an impact uh, on me that it did you. But it's, un I mean, it's on my top 50 list for a reason. It's undeniably... A uh, great movie, and you're right. I'm sure like 90 to 95 percent of the people were probably cynical walking walking into this film about it being a Lego movie, um, and it's so much more than that, right? It's just it's captivating, it's an enthralling. Yeah. I think that I I personally don't think it's as well paced as you think that it is. I think maybe it's too zippy for its own good. That's just me. Um, I think that it felt really long because of how much stuff happened in the film. Um, and so for me, it felt a bit, a bit overlong, but that's, again, that's just because so much stuff is happening so quickly. It's, it's hard to catch your breath sometimes. Now, of course, some, some of the scenes are more methodical and less like fast paced in the sense of, you know, action, et cetera, going on. But for me, that was like my lone critique of the movie because everything else is, is awesome. 
All right, Scott, my number one, a movie that I have to raise my hand and say, I only came across very recently, uh, at least in terms of I'm feeling recency bias on you. Maybe. I mean, we'll see. We'll circle back around to this at the end of the year to see if I still feel this way uh, about it. But it's a movie that I just watched for the first time last week. So maybe, maybe there is recency bias. And that is Mad Max Fury Road, directed by George Miller, starring Tom Hardy, Charlize Theron, Nicholas Holt. There's a bunch of other people in this film, a few of which I hadn't come across before. Uh, but this movie is, you know, the it's the Mad Max franchise. You wouldn't necessarily expect uh, this to be revived by George Miller. I mean, of course, I think George Miller directed the first two as well. But uh, being being revived, yeah. I'm sorry. I said first three, but yeah, go on. Yeah, first three, right? Um, I think that George Miller. You know, he he didn't maybe he didn't have anything else to say for Mad Max, you know, back when those original three movies were made, but he clearly has something else to say now, and that is, you know, it comes in the form of Mad Max Fury Road. It's a post-apocalyptic uh action movie. It's an action movie, and it's maybe the best action movie of all time, period, in my book. I think that what it's able to accomplish on this 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 chase, this two-hour chase movie essentially across the desert and back uh, is just remarkable. Tom Hardy there. I, I should say in general and back up, there isn't that much dialogue in this movie. And I think that it makes the most out of every piece of dialogue that it has in it. And it, what it does is it's a masterpiece in visual storytelling. I'm really excited to watch this movie again in the black and Chrome version of this film, which according to George Miller is the, you know, there are some things that maybe you miss with the black and chrome edition, but hit to him is the way to watch this movie. So I'm really excited to go back and revisit that. But when I circle back around to this and, you know, I talk about being, you know, some of the, uh, one of the, like one of, if not the best action movie I've ever seen, I think that that's because the set pieces that it sets up with ostensibly, it's just a chase. Like I said, it's just a, it's just a chase movie, right? But it sets up these set pieces throughout the film. Uh, it's paced really well, and it sets up these set pieces where something's always just a little bit different. The obstacle that they have to overcome or the attack that they have to fend off is always just a little bit different. And deeper than that, there's, of course, this the, these thematic this thematic exploration of feminism, of eco, of, of like ecological feminism, about how women are inherently tied with uh, our ecosystem and environmentalism. And I think that I've never seen an action movie explore themes the way that this movie does, especially themes that are really difficult to have conversations about in the way that we have them. I mean, Charlize Theron, who I haven't mentioned yet for a reason, is incredible in this film. Uh, did she, she didn't win the Oscar, right, for this? No. No. I mean, I think that she should have. I think she did. I don't think she was nominated, actually. Yeah. Yeah, which is a total bummer because she's incredible. I think it, it adds even more to her long resume of, you know, goat worthy performances. She's absolutely remarkable in this film. Uh, this film to give a little bit more detail, uh, of course, uh, Immortan, Immortan Joe is like this kind of tyrannical or you know, autocratic, however you want to think about it, leader. Despot. Yeah, he's a despot, that's a better way to put it probably, of this of this really poor society in this, in this post-apocalyptic wasteland. He has control of the water. Uh, he has these, he has this like army, essentially this militia of people who are all his children um, that he makes from these wives. Cause essentially he's just procreating every single day. And, and uh, they're this, I mean, really 
uh, ugly family uh, that forms an army uh, called the is it the bad boy? I can't remember what war boys. The war boys. Boy. That's what it is. Yeah, the war boys. And he hoards all of the resources, like I mentioned, with the water. He and he has these five wives that he prizes above all the other wives that he has. And the setup for this movie is that Charlie's Theron, who's one of his uh, imperators, one of his uh, generals in the field of the, uh, of the military, one of his trusted generals, kidnaps these five wives to help set them free because they don't want to be in Morton Joe's uh, five special wives anymore. And that's what instigates this road chase. Uh, Tom Hardy's character would probably take too long to explain how it gets worked in the movie. But essentially, he's this kind of, uh, he's the road warrior, to, to use a uh, subtitle for, I think, a previous Mad Max movie. Uh, and yeah, he, he's this kind of guy on the road that gets captured, but then ends up in the middle of this chase and sides with uh, Charlize Theron, uh, um, Charlize Theron's Imperator. And it, what you get for the rest of the film is these action set pieces and t- this dynamic between Tom Hardy, Charlize Theron, these five wives, Nicholas Holt's uh, war boy character. Uh, I think his name is Nux. I, I can't remember, but that sounds yeah. right. Uh, and I'm sorry. I said, I think that's it. Yeah. 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 And what you get is it, I just got so many things from this movie. That I didn't expect to get from your action movie, even above and beyond an action movie that I knew going into it was going to have really interesting themes to explore. I felt like I got way more out of it. You know, I get this relationship between Nux and the wives and Charlie Theron and Tom Hardy's character. And meanwhile, you also get this coming to terms with everyone's place and also questioning like, yes, that they've, they've run away from a Morton Joe and they don't want to be a part of that anymore. But all of a sudden faced with a prospect of this life that they're not familiar with, that they're on the road, that they're, that they're being chased. They don't know what's on the other side of this desert. Uh, some of them also question whether or not they want to go back to the devil they knew rather than the devil that they don't know. And I think that's an interesting theme. Like I mentioned, I think the environmental component of this, particularly how it interacts with the feminist component of it with Charlize Theron, I think is spectacular. And Again, the last thing, saving maybe the best part of this film for last for me and what sets it, uh, combining it with all the other things that I've already talked about and sets it apart, is its cinematography. We, clearly, there's a recurring theme that good cinematography really gets to me <laughs> in movies, uh, uh, what we've seen time and time again in my top 10 and my top 20. And I think some of the most incredible uh, wide shots, pans, uh, single shots, like one of the, op- not the opening scene, but kind of the first significant scene with Tom Hardy kind of in this war boy prison where he's essentially being set up as a blood bag for, for them to essentially to be, he's an O negative. So he's a universal blood donor and he's going to be used to supplement the war boys who are dying. Uh, and what you get is this chase sequence. That's also this kind of trippy sort of scene. Cause he's has, he clearly has PTSD and he, uh, of, of a girl that he was unable to save uh, during an early part of his life. And that scene is a, is a long shot. It's a single shot through the tunnels and it's beautiful filmography. And that only sets up what is more beautiful cinematography later on in the movie when you have these large panning desert shots, uh, tracking shots of, of the, uh, of the, of the war rig that Charlie's Theron is driving and being chased by uh, the production design of the storm that they drive through early on in the movie is absolutely incredible. And then again, just to reference again, all these relationships that develop over the course of the film, both between Tom Hardy and the other people that he's involved with, but also Charlize Theron's character and her arc around finding out, because there's this underlying or overarching narrative of Char- why Char- not only is Charlize Theron trying to liberate these wives and, and help them in that way, but also she's trying to come to terms with her past and who she was before she was kidnapped by Morton Joe and became one of his imperators. And I think that it all just works so, so perfectly together. 
Yeah, Scott, this was number 49 on my list, but I feel very confident in saying that if I were to watch it again, it would go up uh, because I watched it, I think, two times in pretty quick succession after it came out. I did watch it in the theater when it came out. Um, and I don't know, maybe I, I just wasn't able to quite appreciate it at the time. But yeah. like I said, I think if I were able to watch it again, I mean, I was able to appreciate it. Obviously, it was still number 49 on my yeah. list. Uh, but I think I, I, if I had to point to one thing in my memory, it's just that I think... Uh, the character of Furiosa was so strong that I think it maybe overshadowed some of the other characters in particular, Tom Hardy's max. Okay. Uh, I think maybe gets, you know, shafted a little bit um, in terms of his development, but uh, I got to watch this movie again because um, yeah, I think from a visual perspective, uh, something which maybe I didn't pay as much attention to when I first saw it, uh, definitely want to, uh, you know, try to try to seize on that cinematography and all, all of those visual elements that you've talked about again and rewatching this movie. So uh, you have certainly given me, yeah, you've certainly given me the impetus to watch not just your number one movie, but your number two movie as well. So uh, yeah. I got some homework to do, I guess. That's what this episode is all about. I mean, we've now yeah. talked about in not, not quite 40 movies, but at least 25 to 30 different movies here. And hopefully, at least with a few of the way we've talked about them, we can convince some people who haven't maybe seen all these movies to check them out, too. For sure. That's the goal. That's the goal. And that's the show. And that really is the show. I think that uh, that will just about do it for this very special Best of the Decades episode. Scott, we'd be remiss not to say that we know that over the last quarter of this year, there are some incredible movies still coming out. Uh, just to mention a few, few Little Women, Joker, uh, Ford versus Ferrari, Just Mercy. There's a laundry list of movies that could be uh, contenders, not just for the top 50, but I think the top 20 and the top 10 as well uh, for what's still to come this year. But alas, we had to do this now, and we think it was the right time to do it now. And so we did it. We did it. Maybe we'll we'll give a quick spiel maybe on a main episode of the podcast to see if there's any significant changes to the list uh, once the year has has turned and once uh, we wrap up our end of, end of year 2019 stuff. Maybe we'll revisit it on a maybe a second segment on the show or something like that. But I think it would also be remiss to say that there are movies out there that uh, at least I should say this, that I didn't see this decade that I think that, you know, could have been worthy contenders on my list. Moonlight is one of the, probably one of the biggest ones that I missed. I never saw Moonlight um, from, hmm. from 2016, 2016, 2016. Yeah. 2016. I never saw Moonlight, uh, which is, is on me, and then there, are, you know, there are some more uh, as well. Obviously, on your list, like Nebraska, uh, Sing Street. There are other movies that I didn't that I didn't get to. Uh, jo Steve Jobs movie. Um, I don't know if there are any for you, but now would be the time to call them out if you think that you missed any. There are definitely some. Uh, they're not coming to me right at this exact moment, but uh, like, well, I, I guess one we talked about the other day, The Master. Paul. Yeah. Never caught up with that one. Yep. Uh, Inherent Vice, another Paul Thomas Anderson movie. I guess I need to watch some P.T. Anderson. But um, those are some movies which uh, stick out to me. I never saw Interstellar. Uh, you know, we talked about Nolan a lot, but I never checked that one out. I know a lot of people love that. It's it's it goes too too far off the deep end, in my opinion, to make this list. I I liked it, but one of my close friends from college is obsessed with the movie. So to your point, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but still, should I should still see it regardless? Yeah, I mean, it's a, I think it's right in the wheelhouse of Matthew McConaughey and kind of his resurgence that happened with Dallas Buyers Club, things like that, where he was really, I think, having a bunch of roles where he was really leaving a lot of impact. So it, 
definitely should check it out between him and Jessica Chastain. And Matt Damon is also in that movie. There's a great uh, laundry list. And Hathaway is in it as well, I think. Cool. Awesome. All right, Scott, where can people find you on Twitter? At Scarby Dent. Awesome. And I can be found at SShelton2013 over on Twitter, where you can also find our podcast at, at Media Plug Pods. However, that being said, we'd love it even more if you checked us out over on Patreon. Uh, our podcast Patreon page is www.patreon.com slash Media Plug Pods. There are a bunch of different reward tiers over there, depending on how much you're willing or able to pledge to the podcast. And we'd super appreciate it, even if you contributed only at the $1 level. Again, that's www.patreon.com slash Media Plug Pods. Check it out for yourself. Pick the tier that's right for you. And we would appreciate it greatly. But if you choose not to support us over on Patreon, that's totally fine too. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts and on Podbean, where we'd also appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us, subscribed, shared, all that jazz so we can reach a broader audience. Scott, I think uh, after this release, the next episode of the podcast we're going to be doing, the next going back to our movie review episodes, is going to be It Chapter 2. Uh, that, of course, that very long movie follow-up to It Chapter 1 back in 2017. Uh, it'll be a really great conversation we're going to be having uh, our first return guest on the podcast for that episode, Danny Kunkel uh, of Pet Cemetery fame for us, uh, will be coming. Will be rejoining us over here on the podcast uh, to talk about it, chapter two, and uh, what the Losers Club gets up to uh, twenty years later, however long it is later after the uh, after part one. But until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. <laughs>